<sighs> Go. <laughs> well, hello, Nashville CA Nation. This is Josh introducing the show. <laughs> that was horrible. <laughs> Why would I say? Why did you say Nashville CA Nation? You make it. uh, uh, No, no, that was that was far too Midwest. Go again. Okay, far too Midwestern. Interesting. How do you start? Good. Good afternoon. This is Josh from Nashville CA. I see you cringing on my behalf, and I appreciate it. Ah, I'm getting sweaty over here. Why is your face so red again? (laughs) Why can't you do intros? You used to be able to do this. I swear you've introduced this show before. I totally have. What do you say? You say, uh, hello? I'm not helping you. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nashville CA. This is Josh. With me, as always, from the CA portion of the title is Sean. Hey, Sean, how are you doing today? I'm good. That was a really clunky intro. Oh, really? <laughs> you, you, they don't know it's a movie podcast. They don't know that you're from Nashville. They just know I'm from California. <laughs> and you don't even say it's California. You just said the CA part of it. Yeah. Could be Canada. You never know. It With your be. accent, it could be. It could be. Damn, uh-huh. we just ruined the mystery. Okay. So if I ever move, we might have to change the name of the show. <laughs> I was talking about I was talking about moving the other yesterday with my friends. Uh-huh. To where? The uh, the, the Pacific Northwest is always kind of calling me. Yeah, same here. Trees, I, man. Trees. I I really like the trees you have around here. What kind of trees are these? And just water. Mm-hmm. Um the whole California drought is Starting to wear thin on me. Have you ever been to uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho? You could just ask, have I ever been? Actually, I have been to Idaho. <laughs> I take that back. <laughs> um, I've been to Idaho. We went on a rafting thing, but n- no, I don't think I've been to that town. Okay. Uh, Coeur d'Alene is beautiful, and I was looking at houses up there, like... It's, I guess, a couple hours, maybe an hour, hour and a half from Spokane. Um, so you're kind of right there near the border. And That's I, in Washington. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, See, I know things. And there's just beautiful mountains. I don't know what mountains they are um, or if they can, if they consider them hills or whatever. Uh, but, yeah, I was looking at the houses up there and... They're insanely overpriced. There's some beautiful properties, but um, nothing we could get into. We might have to like start a commune. I would like to start a commune. I think I would do really. I would run a really nice cult. I think. I think you would thrive in a commune. Yeah. Yeah. I. I think. I think I really would. Except I would also want people to leave me alone at the same time. And I feel like that's not very communal. Maybe if everybody leaves everybody alone, like you can do that as a, together. 
Everybody can just fuck off together. That, yeah. I just want to work alone, basically. But I want I like hanging out with people. But when it comes to work, uh, just leave me alone. Yeah, I can <laughs> see that. <laughs> it's really too bad you didn't want to do the movies in the, in the other order because we could have segued right into Suspiria from the cult talk. That would have been great. I mean, we still can. It's just I watched all that jazz first, and then I followed it with Suspiria. See, I, did, I, I flipped the script. I went the other way. Did you? Yep. See, I think normally, I feel like we go chronologically pretty frequently. Yeah, I do too. And I feel like we also oftentimes end with the horror movie. Ooh. I start with Can't Hardly Wait, then we ended with uh, You're Next. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. So we could switch it up and talk about Suspiria. I mean, I'd have to scroll all the way up here to do that. I'm, I, I, it's, it's your call. I'm leaving it in your hands today. Okay, well, let's talk about Suspiria then, first of all. I don't like that decision. Okay. <laughs> Thank uh, you for kidding. voicing your opinion. I'm kidding. Oh, I'm not ready at all. I haven't... Hold on. Let me let me do my my research for Suspiria. Okay, googling Suspiria Wikipedia 2018. 2018. I have Suspiria Wikipedia open. Okay, my research is done. <laughs> <laughs> so first, we're gonna be talking about 2018 Suspiria remake, which was directed by Luca Guadagino, um, screenplay by David. Um, and this is a Argento movie originally. Let's just start with that. Do you like Argento? I do. I really, really love Argento movies. I've never grown attached to any of them. I've seen Tenebrae and Suspiria and one or two others, his Masters of Horror episodes, and I like the colors. I like the violence, but it's it. There's just a disconnect, and I think the biggest biggest disconnect. We talked about it on some episode before, but it's that Giallo dialogue recording where it just oh yeah, basically on, like on set. It seemed like the idea was just like, oh fuck it, we'll fix everything in post. Yes, well, it's oftentimes people weren't even speaking the same language. Like, yeah, you have John Saxon and they're speaking English, then you have someone else in there speaking Italian, but they're just like counting or whatever to make it or saying the ABCs because they don't actually have the script yet. Does does Argento's use of color uh, make his movies more visceral for you as far as they the color of his blood and mm-hmm. overall makes his movies more grotesque for me? It's something about his movies i think part of the reason that i'm not really attached to them is that the color is just uncomfortable for me to watch and see and so i think it works really well but it also means that i don't really want to watch it again there's something really like nightmarish to me about his his colors and his camera like there's some times when the camera just seems to never stop moving and uh it feels like when you're in a dream and things just segue one thing into another and nothing is logical, but it's just happening. That's what his, his uh, lighting feels like to me. 
Yeah, and I think that's another part of his movies is that you got to make your own story a bit with them, mm-hmm. and which works in certain cases, but overall, I think I'm often kind of story driven where visually I'll like something, but if I only like the visuals of it, I'm not really going to keep rewatching it. It's uh, kind of like just saw the Northman and visually it was stunning, but I wasn't that attached to the story. Mm-hmm. That was, I mean, like I think our reviews of the Northman were very similar of like, this was really well done and beautiful and engaging and I didn't really like it that much. <laughs> like, I felt like I was in the world, but I was like, yeah. Guagadino. Guagad... Guagad... Dagnio? Dagnino? Dang it. I tried. Glad that... Glad... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Josh, you chose all that jazz, and... In response to that, I chose Suspiria, but I didn't choose the remake. All right, I chose the remake, excuse me, not the original, because because of those reasons of I, I prefer this movie because it it does have a plot and story and characters that are more thought out and have more depth to them. And I think this movie's really interesting. I think it's a very conscious choice that they went with the most drab color palette they could mm-hmm. have gone with almost as a response to all the critics of, you know, there's so many people who are very dismissive of remakes in general. And I was definitely one of them, especially in the early 2010s when every single horror movie that hit theaters was just a remake of something else. Right. Uh, but I think this movie really takes strides to declare that it's its own thing. And I really commend it for that. Yeah, I definitely think so. It, I mean, it seems like the the original is maybe like a folk version or a fairy story type thing where they kind of fly past a lot of the details and a lot of the setting and you just get the high points of it. Like if someone was retelling it to you, they'd be like, yeah, I don't really remember... Um, there's this girl and she's like at a dance school, but there's this scene where this woman falls into a pit of barbed wire. <laughs> like, right. and that's really how the movie is. It's just kind of like hand wavy up until those big set pieces. And this one, I feel like each scene builds upon the others in a much more deliberate fashion, almost to the point that it felt like something like, um, it felt very much like a Cold War spy thriller for most of it. Like, it's about secrets and hidden rooms and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, having recently watched Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy mm-hmm. and having understood about two-thirds of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. <laughs> That's a pretty good proportion for that movie. <laughs> not, not bad. I was pretty proud of that two-thirds. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but yeah, definitely similar. And like you said, I think there's some really wonderful themes and ideas introduced early or revisited again and again over the course of this movie. And by the end, I, there's a lot to say about this. And I 
And this movie also has a lot to say. That's, um, I really liked like right at the jump when we're introduced to, uh, Chloe Grace Moretz's character. All of okay. the, yes. sorry, who, I know this woman, this actor by name, who is she? Um, she's Chloe Grace Moretz. She was in, I know, uh, she was in what? Uh, was it Shape in the Cloud or Shadow in the Cloud? Did you see that one? No. Okay. Uh, she was in the she, remake of Carrie. She's Patricia in this. And Patricia is the dancer that goes missing, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I got you. Uh, did I see the remake of Carrie? I don't. Th- mm, I might have. I might have. Um, Speaking of which, we're watching Carrie tonight. Oh, are you? And it's Gorley and Rust is covering it tomorrow. Nice. A little De Palma action. Some De Palma I, boobs. I do love that movie. I'm curious to rewatch it again. I I think I really like it. And after having watched Saturday Night Fever a few months ago, Mm -hmm. I'm really ready to see that John Travolta character get his comeuppance. (laughs) He deserves it. He does. (laughs) Uh, So, sorry, but going back to the introduction of Chloe Grace Moretz, as you were saying. Yes. Um, the way that the first scene plays out, there's so many cuts, like it's really unnerving. Um, and as opposed to like those longer, more kind of serpentine camera moves that Argento would do, you have just like cut, 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 cut. And it's very jarring. And I think it like sets you on edge right from the beginning which this is a long movie to be set on edge through. <laughs> it's it like it physically felt tiring to watch this movie. That's funny because while this movie is long, it um all that jazz felt so much longer and all that jazz is about 20 minutes shorter. I was going to say almost every movie I've watched recently feels 20 minutes too long. Like there's a point in the movie when I start to get antsy and I'm like, okay, let's just wrap things up now. And it's normally like this right before the start of the third act. Um, but both of these movies, even though this one felt long, like I, f- I didn't want to leave it. Like I had, I had a lot of time for this movie, uh, well, especially in this for movie, all that jazz. In this movie, when the third act starts, you're not even halfway there. <laughs> That's true, because it is a story in, what is it? Six acts and an epilogue set in Divided Berlin. I like that title card. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And I like how they build on the um, the visual when the title cards come up throughout the piece, uh, how they get more and more elaborate and ornate around the edges. I thought that was really cool. Oh, that's cool. I didn't pay attention to that. Um. So right off the bat, this woman goes to the doctor and she's talking in English and then slips into German. And my, I had no subtitles. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting. So it's one of those where like you, you pick up things and you don't. And mm-hmm. then later on, 
<laughs> all the witches are talking and it's when they're taking the vote for Blanc or for Marcos. Right. And there's like a full conversation and then it zooms in on the radio plane and it's all in German. And I pause the movie and like, hold on. <laughs> I feel like something is amiss here. <laughs> and yeah, it was. Uh, and uh, I had to go on Amazon to watch this because I could not find subtitles for the German bits only. It was either the entire movie in subtitles or or just or nothing. Uh, so that that happened to me once before. I think I've told you this with Stargate. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I, watched, I watched over an hour of Stargate with with no subtitles. And I was just like, man, this is so interesting. Like, what, what a ballsy film experiment to have these, like, scenes that are complete, complete conversations in this alien language <laughs> between James Spader and this prince. And we're supposed to just imply and infer what's going on. That's like, oh, wow, that's so cool. And then the scenes just kept coming and they just kept talking in this alien language. And I was like, oh, there's something wrong here. So, did you notice in this that the subtitles are different colors when they're speaking different languages? Yes. Like, by the end, the the blue subtitles for French. Yes. Yeah, and also that the way the subtitles are white with the red background, it kind of made it hard to read in yeah. a way that felt a little disorienting. Yeah, like it feels like watching a 3D movie without 3D glasses on. Yes, that's what I was feeling. It was very strange, but I yeah. liked it. <laughs> but I liked it, he says. <laughs> um, so, if we, you know, the, the acting in this movie I think is really excellent. I don't know Dakota Johnson from a ton else, but she's... I think she's really great in this movie. Yeah, I don't know that I've seen it because I haven't watched. Oh, she she was in the Gray movies, the Fifty yes. Shades of Gray, and all those. And that's yeah, that's right. Also, I was not aware of Dakota Johnson's parentage. Uh, Minnesota Governor Jesse Johnson. N- no. Uh, Wait, what's that? <laughs> That was a good poll. No, god damn it. That's getting edited. (laughs) The name Jesse Ventura. (laughs) Wait, who's Jesse Johnson then? I don't know. It's a name. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. Why is today such a mess? (laughs) Oh my god. All right. Um, and then the other big name in this one, Tilda Swinton. Um, did you notice the Tilda Swinton multicasting in this the first time you watched it? I knew of it, so it was already okay. ruined for me. I, I did not. I had no idea. I watched the whole movie the first time a few years ago mm-hmm. and had no idea that she was the old man. Now... Why do you think they did this? Is there is there a statement to be made about identity and 
the bodies that we inhabit and that's part of the reason or was it just like oh tilda wants to give this a shot so let's let her do it i really don't know how much to read into it um i think it's an interesting choice like certainly and that the gentleman that they created to inhabit this role is perfect for the role. So there's something about the fact that that he is like an entire creation that is very interesting. Um, Also they're, they're not really playing opposites though. Like I would have expected them to like each represent different portions of, of the battle. Um, which I guess we have like the scientific mind and then the, the witch, um, more supernatural side of things. Maybe that's what they represent. But I did learn that Tilda Swinton requested a prosthetic penis to where, while she was, uh, inhabiting the old man role, which that's just like kudos applause oh, for you- that one. Not just for the nude scenes, just yeah. Anytime, she, oh, okay, yes. <laughs> well, next time I watch this movie, I'll really focus on his crotch and see if I can <laughs> see some swinging. A husband, uh, bulge. the only so watching it this time, the makeup I think is incredible. Mm-hmm. The aging makeup and the 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 gender swap and everything, um, really commendable. The voice is the only thing that you would say is like the identifier, maybe, that it's not a man. But I think, like you said, it's this old, sweet German man who's heartbroken. So Mm -hmm. he has a very frail voice. It really works. It really, really does. There's something about the upper lip that looks Swinton-y to me um, Mm. that I was like... It just looks like hers, but kind of extended um, that I thought when I was watching it, because it, I was trying to see if they actually like swapped in another actor at some point or something. And she's like a recreation of a real person just because it's it is beyond uncanny how good that makeup job looks. Definitely. And I think what you said about the characters being similar is interesting because they are Blanc and um, the doctor. I don't know his name. They're both seemingly very compassionate people who are very concerned about these dancers. Now, whether or not you can really have pity or think Blanc is a good person when she's running, she's part of this coven that does awful, terrible things. Uh, she may be not as... Um, forgivable as the doctor but right and it is inter- does she play marcos also though i think so like it says the wikipedia says that it's t- it's two roles but i think that she also is marcos in that final uh scene. for some reason i thought she was but the marcos uh makeup while gross is not as good no, it's definitely um that feels like something out of an 80s film almost. Yeah, or 
something that you see on the sci-fi show Face Off. <laughs> I've, I've never watched Face Off. It's, a, it's like a baking competition, but you make alien masks. Okay, so that sounds fun. That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I <laughs> all the hands. I did. I don't think I noticed before the hands growing out of Marcos mm-hmm. all over the place. That's really gross. But that ties back in because um, Susie said she wanted to be the hands of the of the company. Ooh. Mm-hmm. What what body part of the podcast would you want to be? Oh man, maybe the calves. Calves are good. Yeah, I think the calves, like, it used to be because we would both uh, stand up through the whole show, and I think that, you know, we were strengthening our calves and had really good calves, so, yeah. Too tired. Yeah. It's Too tired. It's not that kind of day. No. There's a cat tail in the screen. Yes. <laughs> this just... <laughs> Why is this happening? Ghost... Exist someplace else. Okay. Uh, let's see. What else? Oh, the music by Tom York. Oh, yeah. In this overall. Um, I, I I think he did a great job. There's some bits where I think the instrumental stuff is really good. And then there's a few moments where there's some singing. And I feel like this is a little too close to Radiohead. It it did feel, although I love Radiohead, so I was not averse to that. That was my thought as I was watching it. I was like, it almost feels like um, it could be Radiohead B-sides or something at some points. For sure. Yeah. I But when he goes subtle and just does a little synth work, like mm-hmm. there's a scene, I think it might be the the jump training scene or some it's it blanc and Susie mm-hmm. are in that mirrored dance hall together and the the music is just i think it really nails that dark mystical tone of like magic and mystery with a little bit of suspense mixed in uh really really good that whole sequence um i mean that started with her with all the other dancers and then Marcos's hand up underneath the floorboards, like trying to reach through and touch her. That was so weird. Was that Marcos's hand or was that Suspiriorum's hand? Oh, I always took it that it was, that it was Marcos. Because Suspiri, mother Suspiriorum is like the creature creature. And it doesn't, it, it's like a, it looks like the claw from the Ghostbusters dog, doesn't it? <laughs> so I, I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to break that down. But do you want to start getting into the yeah beats of this? We'll figure it out. Um, so it's 1977. Berlin is divided, and uh, this young woman goes to the therapist, and right off the bat you know, freaking out about having a song stuck in her head. And she's talking about like women grooming her and they're taking her hair and her urine and 
they've taken her eyes so that she can see her and Marcos now wants to be inside of her and so very unsettling way to start a movie and it also makes me think of uh how intense being a psychologist must be sometimes because mm-hmm. you know you you get you get your cases where it's just somebody who is dealing with you know, your normal depression or anxiety but then every once in a while you would get a, a case of trauma like this and it, it i don't know it having that weight, that responsibility of trying to help somebody in this situation seems extremely daunting. Well, and there's something about the, the fact that um, Patricia is speaking in two languages, at least two languages throughout the beginning, right? She might even be dipping into French at different points. Um, that's before I caught on to the, the subtitles coding. Um, but in Dr. Klimperer, that's uh, the other Swinton character, Josef Klimperer, um, is speaking German and trying to, like, pull out of her what she's actually meaning. And she speak, she's so fragmented. Um, and the cutting mirrors that. Like, she keeps jumping to new ideas, but it all sounds horrifying. The cutting mirrors that. And yes. later we'll see the mirrors that cut. Ooh. Look at you. <laughs> so, um, and we're going to get introduced now to Susie. And I completely forgot. She's Amish. Is that what they say? Um, I think Mennonite? Or Mennonite. Yeah. Okay. Because they are using a tractor to till their field, which interested me. Yes. Um, um all, but I, there's a whole ahead. lot of, there's a whole lot of workarounds for Amish people to be able to use tractors and things like that. Um, I grew up in Amish country and there was, uh, a lot of like if they didn't own the tractor they could technically use it if someone else uh, asked them to so they would lease a tractor under somebody else's name to plow their own fields as a favor to the th- the third party yeah it was very weird anytime that your religion has loopholes i start questioning <laughs> it that's that's where i show up that seemed like very bureaucratic red tape like yes. that's how you get a workaround at the dmv it's yes. like a third party <laughs> it's uh what go ahead i was gonna say it seems almost like good fellows like i keep all of my holdings under my mother's name so if they ever come after me uh you know she'd still have s- s- nice stuff if i went to jail <laughs> that kind of thing that kind of thing what'd you think of the tapestry on the wall it says uh a mother is a woman who can take the place of others, but whose place no one else can take. I mean, it's directly connected to the end of the movie, right? Yeah. yeah. The whole theme of motherhood in this, and you can only have one mother, and all others will be sacrificed, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's intense. Listening to this dying woman's 
death rattle was upsetting to me. Mm-hmm. I was. Do we ever find out why or how Susie shows up in Berlin? Like, because it goes from her dying mother to her, like in the train station or in the tube right. station, whatever it is. Uh, and then she goes to the dance academy. And we find um, out that she was not invited or they didn't expect her or something. You know, I wouldn't. She has an envelope of cash. Mm-hmm. And she says later on that she went to New York City three times, I think, to see them perform and hitchhiked twice. Mm-hmm. And I do we get. I don't, I don't feel like we get the backstory of why Susie seems to hate her home i mean her mom says later that what does her mom call her she says like she was my sin yes which that's a lot for a kid to bear (laughs) yeah just god damn like that's that's some rosemary's baby kind of stuff where like the belief that you born evil into this world Mm mm-hmm Although, with the way things play out, but I don't know. Is she, is she evil? Is she just fulfilling a role? <sighs> Does, um, that's a very good question, because Susie, Susie seems to become aware of the coven and its actions, but doesn't seem overly alarmed by any of it. Yes. Like, she sees them later in that back room when they have the two cops, and they're pointing at and laughing at their penises and touching their dick with a hook. Yeah. And, and she walks back, and she closes the door, and she, she kind of seems nonplussed by things. Mm-hmm. Like if, if you saw that, just imagine the questions you would have. <laughs> No, apparently the questions are none. It is you're just going to keep dancing for uh, Tilda Swinton. Yeah, that's so. Okay, this movie is it explicitly talking about? Um, I mean, the the setting makes it hard from an American perspective not to think of the whole reason that Berlin becomes divided, right? Like you, you're led to think of world war two and the fact that it hangs over this city, like, you know, they keep having the, what they label as terrorists or freedom fighters. However you want to look at it. We get these news reports of people like, um, trying to, I guess, reunite the, the city and it seems like there's a commentary here going on about just following orders type of uh, defense. Do you think that, the, like, do you read that as Susie's journey as like becoming part of this uh, evil machine? Or is that just happenstance and I'm reading too much into it? No, I th- there's definitely stuff there. I mean, the, to set it in the Cold War, or and the, then to give 
um, the Berlin Wall such a strong focus. I, I it's clearly done with intention, and it's like you know the city is divided, the witch's coven is divided mm-hmm. between Marcos and Blanc, as we'll see later on. Um, the the doctor and his wife they have their initials carved on a wall but it's carved on a 90 degree angle mm-hmm. so that the each of their letters are on a different side of the wall and can't even really see each other so i think i don't know i think it's, it, it's a lot of this seems to be like division and like the pain of like the painful process of change or of transfer of power I like that. So we follow Susie to the dance academy and she has to audition. Uh, This whole scene where like she's prepped to audition a piece and then they they tell her to to just dance with no music. I'm very glad they did though, because the sound design in this scene is incredible. Mm Mm-hmm. The dance feels so strong and the movements of like when she punches out across her body over her shoulder and stuff and you just get the little like kind of air noises and the feet stomping. Uh, This movie really, another movie I was going to maybe pick to show you was uh, the Gaspar No movie called Climax, which is equally as fucked up as this, but this has more of a focus on the dance over the arc of the movie. Whereas that movie is very dance centric for about 20 or 30 minutes. And mm-hmm. then it just like it, chaos happens. Um, but this movie really made me appreciate dance and interpretive dance and stuff that's not ballet but how much strength and power there can be in dancing like this oh and it's very cool to see over the course of the movie like we start out seeing all the other women stretching and stuff but not really dancing in unison um and we see Susie's dance and then we see it get built piece by piece until the final like recital, uh, which is amazing. And then I guess the, the scene after that, which is kind of like a dance, but it's the destruction of everything. And I think that that whole arc is just, it's so well done. Like it's so, someone put a lot of thought into the choreography, um, of both the camera and the bodies through that whole, through time like that for sure and this has a lot of black swan vibes as you were mentioning that stuff and the building of the dance itself and seeing the process from rehearsal to stage production which we also get in all that jazz later Mm -hmm. um speaking of the the cinematography so the rehearsal room is such an amazing set the way that all of the mirrors are broken into panels. And so again, like that idea of divisions and maybe even divisions of identity when every single person 
in this room is reflected three to five, six times sometimes. From every angle you see, yeah. As a filmmaker, does this fill you with dread trying to figure out how to shoot inside this room? Because at one point later on, the camera literally turns and it rotates and looks directly into the mirror. Right. But you don't see the camera. So I'm really curious how they were able to film all this. That's, uh, I was, I paid close attention to the beginning portions of that where everything is, um, off center, right? So you're never like looking directly into a mirror. Um, it would still be hard to like find your place in the corner that you're not catching yourself, but it's doable. But then when they do that 360 move, I was like, okay, now you're just showing off at this point because they wrap around. And I can't remember if it's a 360 or like a figure eight, but like around in between um, Tilda Swinton and Dakota Johnson as they're in there perfecting her, her jumping. And I, I was just, you're totally sucked in by that because it's one of those where you just go, Oh, I can't figure it out. Like, and it doesn't look like fakey, like CG. Um, but there has to be some sort of trickery going on there with like green screening out the, the camera or whatever. Have you seen anything else by this director, Luca? Guadagino? <laughs> I'm just going to keep changing the way I pronounce it each time. And one of them will be correct. I guess the biggest one he had was Call Me By Your Name, which I have not seen. I have not seen um, any of his other things. and But from what I understand, nothing else is like this as well. Because hmm. I'm really impressed by... He, he really made this his own. And mm-hmm. there was so much thought put into this. And to remake Suspiria... And to add an entire hour to the runtime, right? <laughs> ballsy on its own. Uh, so after this dance, they say that there's a spot because Patricia left. Uh, as soon as they say they don't charge money, are your red flags flying up? Oh yeah, it's there's all of these women who run the place. The uh place itself seems huge. They give you at least room, if not room and board, it looks like. Um, Yeah, that's very much, uh, if you're not paying, you are the currency. And that's that's the feeling I get. Yeah. It's like uh, NCAA athletes. It's like you are the currency. You mm-hmm. you make the money for us. That's why we can't. You don't have to pay anything. But uh, go ahead. I was gonna say, logically speaking, it it just seems sinister, and maybe it's because you're, you know, like we're looking out for it now. But um, immediately, I was like, oh, sex trafficking. There's some sort of like human trafficking also going on through this that uh, they never delve into the actual finances. That would have been a whole other movie. But how they keep themselves afloat from that front is like how just how dance doesn't bring in that much money. That's 
these women are burning calories left and right. They've got to eat all the time. I don't understand it. <laughs> what are these witches doing? Well, I imagine they use their witchy powers mm-hmm. to to get money or whatever. Uh, so around the uh, the dining room and in the kitchen, I love the vibe of this kitchen and set decorating for the seventies. I don't know. It just to set a movie in the seventies must be such a pain in the ass because then if you show a kitchen, all your little flower boxes and your salt and everything, you have to get an art department to make everything from scratch. Well, I bet you could find a lot of like vintage things from shops, um, but everything. I feel like in the seventies, you're okay with taking anything from the 40s or 50s onward and that's kind of what this kitchen feels like to me is like everything is older and used and kind of beaten up a little bit i mean the the walls have like peeling plaster and paint coming off of them uh there's like stacks and stacks of dishes uh on on the walls it's just really interesting did this movie make you cold Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, me too. It's the, it's the architecture combined with every room is empty. If there's there's not a houseplant in sight. There's not a blanket in sight. It's just like barren floors, barren walls. Outside, it's constantly gray, and the streets are constantly wet. There's just a very cold, unwelcoming place. Yeah, that's I made note of that because I would think that for dancers like you would have coziness and some kind of like softness that they could like lounge around in and when they're not dancing something comfortable for them to be in but this feels totally the opposite like like almost like a bombed out building that they took over and never really did anything to yeah, well, I mean, this this school is brutal on its dancers, mm-hmm. and so I think it's it's trying to strip that away from them, kind of like the military would do, and strip you down to nothing and turn you out, and you're stronger on the opposite side of things. Speaking of the military, that one poor lady who has a brutal death later, mm-hmm. she has on glasses that look like they were U.S. military issue glasses yes which they i don't know they they i don't i i just felt really bad for her and i i was never quite sure what's up with this lady yeah and you know the one i'm talking about yeah she never really talks or anything um does she say a word in this movie does she right before her her death later or does she just I don't know. But she's Brutal death, though. Yeah. And she's always in the frame, like, in these big scenes with all of the other, the rest of the coven, like, she's kind of flitting around the outside, and the camera will follow her for a few beats, like, as it's transitioning from one person to another. But she's always, um, I don't know, like, she looks constantly uncomfortable in her own skin. Like, she is just not happy with any of her surroundings at all. Yeah, do you think... For me, it felt like 
she was a long-term coven member and had just gotten to her wits end mm-hmm. by whatever they were doing and how many girls this school had churned through and put through the grinder. So I'm I'm guessing that I, I, I didn't get anything extra. I thought maybe there was like something more mythological going on where as Susie's power grows, she's maybe taking away from this woman or something like that, as we see in this movie that happens a couple times. But I think it was more of just a guilt thing mm-hmm. in the long run. But that next stab, oh, yeah, she does it twice. Two next stabs. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> you notice that when Susie first walks into her room at the school, you hear very heavy breathing, and it's I couldn't tell if it was her mother's or if it was Marcos's. Oh, no, I didn't notice that. Yeah, just subtle. And I, I like to think that it's it's either like the memory of her mom lingering after her, or it's Marcos getting excited that like my potential new body is here. So the the coven So if this isn't clear, the coven also runs the dance academy and is using it to find suitable hosts for um maybe for themselves as they age out. Do you think that they all go through this or does Marcos the only one who gets this this privilege? You know, that's a good question. I I would think that they would all want to turn at this. Mm-hmm. Marcos, they've tried a few times, and each time it's failed. And so, you think those are like, they say Marcos is disease on top of disease. Yes. And her body is a prison. <laughs> so, do you think those hands growing out of Marcos are... Like the the souls or whatever of the w- previous women that she absorbed, it almost felt like um, I don't remember which Nightmare on Elm Street it is, but when Freddy has all the souls of the people inside him, like, and it, when his shirt opens up, yes, yeah, that's part four. Okay, that's, uh, Dream Dream Warriors is three. What's what's part four? Whatever part four is my favorite one. That's the one with. Uh, Ninja training, karate, yes. set to drama rama, anything, anything. <laughs> and then you get a, put your hands on me. Oh, yeah, 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 the, yeah. I think it's my favorite of all the nightmares. Nice. I just watched it again recently. Uh, but yeah, that's... Put them on, put them on, put them on me. <laughs> that was the, that was what that makeup made me think of, was that same kind of thing. Of course, that's where my brain always goes. Right. Um, so we have our first rehearsal here, and she tells Susie to just chill out. They're dancing to a 3-4 beat, which I don't like. Also, later on, all that jazz starts in a 6-4 beat, and I'm like, get out of here with these time signatures. <laughs> <laughs> give give me 4-4 four, four or give me death. You don't even like 3-4? You don't like a nice waltz? One and two and three and one and two, two. and three and one. Um, dun, 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 and do I like a nice waltz? You know, did you ever have to do a cotillion? No, 
I'm from the Midwest. We did square dancing. Oh, that's adorable. <laughs> I had to do cotillion and I dreaded it. I hated it. I hated one of like my biggest fears as a kid was like being a preppy. I did not want to be seen as like a, a prep. So I hated dressing up, wearing collared shirts, combing my hair, anything like that. And cotillion was all three of those things combined. <laughs> and uh, just remember doing all I all I learned was like firm handshake, and I know how to do to do the box step, and that's that's what I learned from cotillion. <laughs> Does that still exist? That seems like such an idea of like leftover from the 1950s when you'd go down to the sock hop. I think that it's left over from like um, the plantation era. That's what that feels like. Like we're gonna it, go uh, yeah. to the cotillion. And... I know. I like. It felt weird to be doing that in Southern California. It's yeah, like, mom. This is why we're Californians, so we don't have to do things like this. <laughs> yeah, you wish. <laughs> uh, is this where Mother Blanc? Touches her hands and her feet, and then they glow. Um, is it is it this rehearsal? Yeah, it's it's it, it's around here somewhere, I think. Uh, yeah, so we get she touches her hands and her feet at one point. Later on, with the jumping, we see her take the with just a glance. She transfers the jumping woman's uh-huh. powers to her. Um. In that scene where the jumping is happening, mm-hmm. I had an intense feeling of dread that I was going to see an ankle snap Ooh. because they are jumping so high and they're hitting the floor so hard and the camera's there on the feet. There's a lot of really great footwork shots in this movie where, where it's either the camera's panning along as the dancer's going across the floor and just the sound of the stomps in this hollow wood floor mm-hmm. conveys such power that when the dancing is happening and it's like higher, 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 I was ready for a leg to snap. And maybe I was just, I had forgotten that Mia Goth later is the leg snapper. Right. But I, I, was, I was just like cringing the entire time they're jumping. <laughs> The um, that made me think of the portion in Black Swan when she like rips her nail off. Yeah, just the, all that focus on the feet made me think that there was going to be some kind of uh, trauma. Ugh, that that hangnail in Black Swan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the so yeah, Susie's pretty badass. Huh? I was saying right here, she'll she'll play the part of the protagonist. New girl in school, first day, and she's just like, I'll do the lead. Yeah, and I expected there to be some kind of drama between the dancers that, like, yeah, it was, I I thought that part was great, the fact that they all seem to be supportive of her. Like, they're happy that she's there. You're right. I I do like that fact that this movie doesn't need to manufacture extra stress on the protagonist by having her being undermined or backstabbed by jealous dancers. The, uh, 
the other woman who left was Olga. And when Susie dances, it doesn't transfer one to one, but it's like a fight scene is happening, but in two separate locations. And Susie's dance affects Olga's body as she's so. Being you flung. haven't seen you haven't seen this before. No, this this is the scene of the movie. I think for most people, this would be the one that would stick with you. Mm-hmm. How was your experience? Because for me, rewatching this a second time, I had my hand over my mouth, like, and I was just, <laughs> I was covering my face, and just my hand was slowly covering more and more of my face uh-huh. as this number keeps going. And then when she urinates, uh, it, uh, oh, this is brutal. And it's just the contortions that she winds up in because Olga is trapped in the mirrored room, which seems to be some sort of like nexus of power. Like all those mirrors do something. And when Susie moves, it's like, she's, it's like she's beating the shit out of her. (laughs) Like, and all you see for Olga's half is the results. And you don't normally see like a fight be this graphic or someone getting tortured. It's not this graphic and it's, Oh God, it is. I don't want to say horrifying, uh, but the, the shapes that she contorts into is so unnatural. I didn't like it. I mean, it's great. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's fantastic, but it's really upsetting. Yeah. I, Olga's played by, uh, Elena Fokina and what a performance. I don't know if she had a stunt performer doing some of this, but to just like fling yourself into the air again and again and slam yourself onto the ground and into the mirrored wall while having your left shoulder contorted behind your back. It's it's a hell of a performance. You know, I love to see an actor as worried as I am sometimes about actors going too far with their bodies and mm-hmm. like sacrificing too much without realizing that, Oh no, this will lead to like lingering injury. I still love it when I see an actor really, really go for it. The part where her jaw gets distended, like her face yeah, that's, slams that's into not the good. mirror it's and not her, good. her whole jaw like moves three inches to the side. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, dude, but so she's dead and then the coven comes in with their hooks, but she's not dead. Then they all start fucking hooking her as she's still alive. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Yeah. uh, At the end of that note, I had a question mark and an exclamation point of... They're putting big hooks into her and carrying her away. Like, ugh. Like, just like she's a hunk of meat. Yeah. Later, Blanc asks Susie, what did dancing feel like today? And she says that she imagines what it feels like to fuck like an animal. Or uh-huh. To f- fuck an animal. <laughs> and, um... Oh, and Blanc waves a hand over her back. As she says, she's glad Olga is gone. And so, it, you definitely... 
as caring and compassionate as like you want to believe Mother Blanc to be, mm-hmm. as Susie says like earlier when she first gets to the dance school, like I can't believe how nice she is. Right. It's almost more evil to be nice and kind to someone while still pulling the strings like this well, than that, it is to just be straight evil to their face. And that's the thing. Like that's what drives so much of um, black Swan, right? Is the pressure from the other dancers, the pressure from her mother and the pressure from the dance instructor um, or the, the director of the show that they're all putting on her. And here you have none of that pressure. Like every time that Dakota Johnson um, makes a mistake or doesn't live up to something, Mother Blanc is there to like comfort her and tell her, "Oh, you can do it." Like we're gonna we're gonna work on this until you can do it, kind of thing. And she's not like berating her or beating her up or anything, uh, which just makes it that much more insidious. Yeah, and the fact that to think that Olga. And presumably Patricia also had a similar experience of being the one on the podium Mm -hmm. and being the exalted one, the chosen one. And then once the coven realizes that you're not the chosen one, to then not only be discarded, but, but to be dissected by them and to be taken apart. And we'll just take your dancing skill and we'll take your jumping skill. And that's all we want from you. It's very haunting that's it would be much better to be a second stringer in this uh dance company <laughs> where yeah oh hell yeah you're just there to fill out the the dance and they don't expect anything from you that would be great yeah. put some sexy red ropes on swing your head around start convulsing a little on the dance floor yeah and they're like okay good job not great you're you're definitely not reincarnation material uh that whole thread of it, I, it's because I just finished the book, but did it bring up last days for you at all? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the whole idea of a cult and rebirthing, a cult leader rebirthing themselves mm-hmm. through someone else. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I just started, I actually didn't start it yet, but I picked it up Um Another book by Adam Neville called uh, No One Gets Out Alive. Oh, okay. It sounds fun. I know nothing about it, but that's a good title. Yeah. I liked his writing. His writing was really good. Yeah, I just finished The Ritual by him, which is that Netflix movie. Mm-hmm. And the book was good. The movie was a really good adaptation of it, though. Different, but I like what the I like the choices that the movie made. Uh, so the cops show up looking for Patricia and this is where Susie and the other girl are now looking around in the file room for Olga or Patricia's file. I, does Susie takes lipstick out of the drawer. Did this come back? I thought maybe this would have some kind of witch's hex mm-hmm. kind of thing where you take, you take somebody else's possession as part of, um, as part of a way to cast a spell or a hex on them was, would be to like have one of their possessions. It didn't really seem to play out like that though. No, I read it more as 
she was taking on aspects of the mothers then um because that's what she's doing throughout this whole thing is right like she's becoming like them she's not like patricia or olga or mia goth's character um who once they get an inkling of it they start fighting back and like trying to figure it out uh susie is just there she's like no no i'm gonna go down this path i i'm okay with this okay yeah and this next scene like i said with the police and their penis mocking is complete evidence of susie being fully on board for Mm -hmm. all of this and uh the therapist, Dr. Klemperer, is looking for Patricia, uh, and he's the one who wind up sending the police and thinking that appealing to authority is going to actually accomplish anything in this circumstance, which is sadly mistaken, apparently. Yeah, just thinking about the what the police are dealing with right now mm-hmm. in this era and time to have an old man bringing up concerns of a local ballet school i don't know cops would feel like they have bigger fish to fry that's and i know nothing about the um the bader meinhof um terrorist activity like i only know of the bader meinhof phenomenon which is named after them. Um, okay, what I see, I, I knew I had heard Bader Meinhof. What is that phenomenon? It is that once you're exposed to something, you start seeing it all over the place. Like, okay, the num- the number twenty three. Yes. Yep. Or the movie that everyone tried to forget, including Jim Carrey. <laughs> or uh, blue cars, or red cars, or whatever it is. In your particular instance, yeah. Dude, it's happened twice to me recently in the garden where I went to get chicken eggs and I was listening to a book on Audible. And right as I reached in the coop to grab the eggs, something like the book said like, and his, his, he looked like a little bird egg sitting there. Just, ooh, weird. Oh, that's synchronicity. Oh, that's different? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I definitely, in case you weren't aware, I'm I'm the main character. <laughs> so just just to let you know, heads up, you're not. I'm sorry. That's okay. But it was it was that chicken egg thing that confirmed it for me. Uh, I often feel like an NPC, so that's fine. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, so. Blanc wants to do a dance about rebirth. Interestingly, she tells Susie to improvise, which I think is cool. And also, like, I'm surprised that the other girls aren't jealous because this new girl coming in and being the teacher's pet and being allowed to improvise on the dance floor would make me very jealous if I was one of these backup dancers. That's... um. I think it's really interesting that the I tried to like track the 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 movements right of like her free form dancing um but does it link up to her other dancing or to the dancing uh in the 
the blood orgy at the end. <laughs> uh, that that's kind of what I was thinking of is like, I was trying to see if it, or with her dreams, because she has all these weird dream sequences, like that are almost the act breaks. Uh, yeah. I don't know. You know, her dancing, her go-to dancing style is extremely primal mm -hmm. and it's often on her hands and knees and writhing in the ground and writhing on against the floor and stuff. And Later on, we see a lot of it, you know, especially towards the very end of this movie with all the naked women standing around dancing. It's so violent, their mm -hmm. dance styles. And it seems like they they slowly, like, adapt to her style as she becomes stronger and stronger. Their their dance style starts to approach hers. That's the the final recital in the red ropes like really emphasizes the tribalistic violent nature of that dance because those ropes, like all I could think of was the dancer next to you getting hit and whipped by, <laughs> by these ropes <laughs> when the, when one dancer would start a spin or something, I'm like, the, you'd be getting flogged all the time. Right. Uh, these witches like to party, huh? When they go out to dinner. Oh yeah. They're having a great time. <laughs> they're so noisy. Um, so they say they need, they're going to use the, the doctor because they need a witness for some reason. And I, there's a really cool, not throwaway shot, but the shot here where they say that Susie can sense things. And at that moment, she's walking by in the background of the shot and the camera, the, the editor does a zoom like you're watching a Bigfoot footage or something like that that freeze frame it was almost like it was out of a documentary or something i th i just thought that shot was so interesting to see susie look like at the camera from the background and to zoom in on that oh yeah they do um utilize like snap zooms and um weird slow motion things that feel very 70s but don't feel like argento but they feel of the era which i think is pretty cool yeah um yeah dude these dream sequences are <laughs> fucking wild huh with all the different crazy masks and blood and wrists being cut and giant silver hooks uh very startling and the weird um floating energy ball that like it's it's standing next to Susie in some scenes and then it's like on top of her and then she's like floating uh it feels what's what's, what's weird about that <laughs> no that's totally that's fine uh, you don't have an, you don't i see my energy ball i see your you don't see your energy ball it that's that's no me, other that's, shoulder other oh, shoulder okay yeah the, the dark energy yeah. Uh but the the whole thing feels um like Lynchian is maybe too on the nose. Um but some of the stuff reminded me of did you ever see um oh Begotten? The oh, yeah, an hour of it. I I didn't finish it. Not because I didn't like it, I was just I just lost pace with it and lost track. Uh 
Begotten has some of the most striking horror imagery I've ever seen. I don't think it's a very good movie. I Uh don't understand any of it. But it's so fucked up looking. Yeah. In the grain of it, in the black and white, and how overexposed it is in some parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the most fucked up looking things I've ever seen. Yeah, it feels like you're watching something you shouldn't be. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And in that way, I think it's ex- it's extremely successful. Mm-hmm. It's just not a movie I want to watch over and over and again. Uh, so... We got the jump scene, transfer the jumping girl's powers over the radio. Um, they say that the terrorists poured the alcohol that was on the flight on the passengers and were threatening to set them on fire. Mm-hmm. Is this flight traveling with moonshine? <laughs> like, m- most alcohol is not flammable. To, to be flammable, alcohol has to be... Um... What, what proof... Makes it flammable. Uh, any any alcohol above a hundred a hundred proof. Okay. So over fifty percent alcohol, but most whiskeys and stuff are eighty proof. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe maybe uh, some vodka. Vodka. Maybe. Do you want to know what the grossest thing in this movie is? What is the grossest thing in the movie? It's when the doctor and Sarah, is it Sarah, are at lunch. Okay. And Tilda Swinton, as the doctor, is eating like a chunky casserole. They're the mouth noises. Every time she speaks is fucking disgusting. (laughs) It's so gross. Because you hear like the... Every... My my dad was an open mouth chewer, and it traumatized me. And so now I have, I'm severe. I'm very very sensitive to mouth noises. That's amazing. Like in this movie where we've seen (laughs) intestines, like working intestines, I think uh, still connected, and people smear blood on the walls, and a woman contorted to the point where she pisses herself. It's it is. The mouth noises, which you find the most upsetting. <laughs> and chunky, creamy potatoes, just uh-huh. so gross. <laughs> He's eating a nice pot pie. And, and it did look good, though. It, what, was was that a pot pie? It looked like it. Yeah, some kind of uh, definite, like, old old world pie dish. Uh, this is my One of my favorite scenes is coming up next here with uh, Blanc and... And Susie are in the the mirrored room together. And Blanc tells her that a dance can never be beautiful again. We need to break the nose of every beautiful thing. And then we also get, what part of the body do you want to be? And she says, the hands. Why do you think she chose the hands? Just because the hands are what get things done? That's what I think. That's the hands make things and destroy things. And... That's what it feels like. Uh, also, like, what else was she going to say? I I thought she might go with the heart. Uh, 
because that would also kind of track. But yeah, but Blanc would have sacrificed her on site if she had said, "I'm the heart of the company." Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's far true. too Disney of an answer for us. <laughs> What's your next? Um, I've got... next thing I got is that dinner scene where they talk about Marcos and her body, and then the glasses lady stabs herself. Um, I've got during all of this, uh, Sarah is now concerned and believes that Susie is making a deal with the witches, but she doesn't know about it like unbeknownst to her. Um, and that's also where she, I think it's intercut with that dinner scene where Sarah, uh, finds Patricia and some of the other girls who have gone missing from the dance company who they've attempted to utilize before. So uh, is, is that later? I th- I thought it was intercut with it. Uh, let's see. Is Sarah Marigoth? Yeah, Marigoth. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It's it's close to here. So so yeah. Sarah's off looking around, and she goes. Sarah goes into the mirror room, and this is the part where she's like. She's counting her steps up and then counting them back down. Mm-hmm. And was that because the dance, the school was so dark that she was moving through the darkness, counting her steps? Well, and I think the fact that it's like cavernous and uh, it doesn't make sense within the, it's got like shining geography to it. Right. Uh, but she finds the door and just don't. Don't sneak around behind mirrored walls. No. Where and then you so you find a room full of scary artifacts and don't stick around there either. There's just it's too scary. <laughs> <laughs> and then they she hears the coven, a bunch of people like yelling in that back room there. Mm-hmm. Like just just leave. Just go. <laughs> yeah. Uh wouldn't it ever occur to you that you might be in a horror movie? Like, it would have to cross your mind at some point when you're sneaking around and finding the weird shit that's been hidden, especially if you suspect things. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, for some reason, she takes the hook and she goes to see the doctor. And when she he asks her to leave the hook and she leaves it on the desk and it it's like a Euler's disc when she puts it down on the desk. Do you know Euler's disc? No. It's those toys where it's like a it's like a hockey puck toy and you spin it and then it keeps on spinning and spinning. But as it starts to go it's, it starts to lose its momentum, it goes whoa, 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 One of those. So I just thought that was a very satisfying little sound that that hook made, where mm-hmm. you hear the the frequency get shorter and shorter and shorter. Uh, I didn't want to skip over that woman's death, if you had anything to say about it. Um, What do I have to say about stabbing yourself twice in the neck? Ugh. Rough way to go. 
but a much better way to go than letting a bunch of witches have their way with you. Um, is it though? <laughs> is well, it? I don't know. Would you rather have your head? I guess having your head instantly vaporized would probably be better than this. Yeah. The I don't know. Do you have what do you think about it? It's like let's see, what are some other we talked about that in Cache in Cash, that movie. Yes. There's a brutal neck thing in there. Uh yeah, what's what's it bringing up for you? Um, I mean, any type of, um, self-harm in that range is upsetting to me, uh, especially when it feels like if there's a a big buildup to it, it's not as bad. This comes out of nowhere and feels way too realistic. Yeah. But the fact that she had to spontaneously do this with zero buildup because otherwise the witches would have stopped her. Yes. Is scary to me. Like this is this is her prison break moment. Oh god. And then the fact that everybody like I'm wondering why they're upset. Like does it weaken the coven? Um do they actually care about their friend? Like their witch friend? Or what is it, you know, when they're because like at the time, everyone kind of jumps to help. But then afterwards, they just all seem a little uh, like shell shocked, like you would be, I would guess. But it made me think of one of my favorite moments from Curb Your Enthusiasm is uh, Larry's at dinner with his in-laws and somebody spills a bowl of soup on Larry, and Larry's mother-in-law yells, "Somebody get a sponge!" And Larry looks at her and goes, "Why don't you get a sponge?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, I haven't seen that one, but that I love it. Why don't you get a sponge? Um, so we get a little uh, exorcism of Emily Rose moment where Sarah's out in the street and she sees a witch watching her and then the witch's face turns into a stranger. Um, the Susie's mom on her deathbed says, my daughter is my sin and a smear on the world. And earlier we saw in one of her dream sequences um, that she was smearing blood on the wall, like in a letter A almost. But I I assume it's mm, Susie. Yeah. Like we ne- we never see who the hand is connected to, but I think it's after. That might be before. But anyway, Susie said she's going to be the hands, and then we see all this hand imagery in the dream right. sequence, which would make sense. Yeah, that's a that's a good call. Um. So I, the airplane terrorist thing, the Bader Meinhof thing. I, I don't quite get it. So they, you know. It, the report comes on that the police kill three out of four t- uh, terrorists on the plane, and then three out of five prisoners die in a suicide pact, supposedly, but 
everyone thinks that they were assassinated. Is this... Are they trying to make a parallel story here with the, the coven? And in this story, I, I, I wasn't quite sure why this was included in the movie. Well, partially, I think it is... Um, there's a part that if we knew more about that terrorist situation that we would understand a little more, but plot wise it functions because, um, they say that Patricia was involved with the terrorists because she was a militant, um, with that portion or at least went to meetings and stuff. So that's kind of how they hand wave her, uh, her disappearance is that she got involved with them and got disappeared um, by the terrorists. So it serves like a purely plot device uh, for her disappearance, but also I think it extends the metaphor in ways that I don't entirely understand. Like, yeah, I, it's one of those where I feel like I'm a little too stupid about world history to, to get it. Yeah, I, geopolitical issues are not my strong suit when it comes to the game of Jeopardy. Yes. Um, I like s- sports and science categories, please. <laughs> and movies. <laughs> Don't ask me about geography or the Bible. <laughs> Those are my two Achilles heels. Well, and there's a whole like thread of the people in power... Like you said, the the transfer of power and the people in power who are preying on the people underneath them um, and the cycles of power and abuse that that would bring on uh, that I feel like you could probably chart out exactly like who all these things represent. Um, but that would probably take away from some of the, the mystique of the movie overall. But I feel like it's it's all there. Uh, to be understood. Speaking of Achilles heels, uh, Sarah is going to find Patricia who is withering away. And she looks like a default NPC from a dark souls game. (laughs) When you're tarnished and you're like withered away. That's what Patricia looks like. Uh, But that person with no feet crawling at her, Oh, might yeah. be the scariest image in this movie. That's like some Silent Hill stuff. What Sarah finds back in the wherever the hell she is. She's behind the wall. Is, where is she? She's behind the walls of the of the performance room, right? I don't know because later when she is screaming nothing uh it it doesn't no one in mm. the performance room seems to hear it yeah so the witches those witches were did they they were casting holes under her feet in the floor right those I, holes were not there beforehand yes i think so and can i tell you i don't like broken bones <laughs> like, especially when they stick out of the skin i just yeah broken bones in movies always still get me and this one is bad this one just and the fact that like the dance the the cutting of the dance 
and this woman screaming with a broken leg and going back and forth and as the intensity of the dance builds and everything. This is just a lot. It's a lot to take in. Well, and the mothers, like, in the background, um, there's a scene where they cut the girl's hair for the final dance and, like, scoop it up and carry it away like it's a baby almost. Uh, and Patricia had talked about them taking her hair and her urine to to do hexes with or something. Um, and then they laid out this grid on the floor, like that looks like some sort of shamanistic uh, symbology that you would use for to um, like locate and uh, energies, right? And like focus them all. And that's yeah. what the dance happens on top of, which just makes you feel like this is how they're getting their powers through all this. Um, and we've never seen it with, we've never seen the dance in full with this thing on the ground and in the outfits. Like we've seen bits and pieces of it throughout it. But when we finally see it all built together, it really looks ritualistic and tribalistic. And it's, it's just really impressive. The choreography is great. The costume design is really spectacular. I love the the simplicity of the two white streaks on Susie's face to mm-hmm. set her apart. It it looks really, really good and striking. Um, Would the, you go see a dance like this? Yes. See, I would much rather see this than what's happening in all that jazz these are like day and night levels of interest i (laughs) as soon as you start singing i'm out but if i can just watch your interpretive dance and attach my own emotions and Mm -hmm. story to it i'm much more in okay so uh witches rituals you're totally down for oklahoma not so much Yes. Okay. <laughs> seven brides for seven brothers wouldn't be caught dead in, but I don't even know what that is. I've never heard of that. Oh, really? That's yeah. That's a good. It's a classic. Uh, Roger and Hammerstein, I believe. Wow. Yeah. A bride for each brother, huh? Yes. Unless there's one greedy one that moved to Utah and took two brides, and then there's one lonely guy off to the side. Oh, I've been watching a show about the the Mormons. Big Love? No, but by one of the guys who worked on Big Love. It's a a new one with Andrew Garfield. Ooh, I don't like him. (laughs) You have so many actor opinions. It's just... it's, It's really... Anyone who works as a superhero now... I, 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 My brain just turns against them. I'm trying not to do it with Oscar Isaac, mm-hmm. but as I told you, get your Hemsworths out of here. Get your Downey Jr. out of here. Just get get your Tom whatever from Spider-Man. Get him out of here. Get Cumberbatch out of here. I'm, I'm sick of all of them. Give me new people. Please. Please. I'm so done with all of these people. <laughs> I don't even watch the movies, and I'm done with it. That's amazing to me. You're, you're. 
Hey, at least Joseph Gordon-Levitt isn't getting cast anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I won that battle. Um, so the fact that the witches are able to instantly heal a compound fracture makes it all the more frustrating that they're so focused on just doing evil shit. <laughs> they have the power of healing. Like, these witches could do so many incredible things. Um, and I, I know it's like, it. they're surviving in a tough world, and it's tough to be a woman, especially at, at this time in the country as the way it is. But they're only choosing to do evil. And even when they do heal someone like they do here, it's only for more evil intentions. Mm-hmm. And that's their whole role, though, right? Like, they're supposed to be nurturing and helping these women, uh, like, fulfill their their dreams and their, their God-given talents or whatever, it, however you would look at it, right? But instead, they're utilizing their bodies and just, uh, like I said before, it's much more insidious than if it was a more obvious and brutal uh takedown of them for you know just using them for the dance it is like they're using their bodies and their souls yeah and we'll see that too here where the one witch is staring daggers at the doctor and i thought she was hexing him but i actually it seems like she's taking his memories Mm -hmm. because you know one of the most cruel things in this movie is what happens next with the doctor when when they bring his wife back and give him all of this hope and this false story only to have him walk by the school and make it disappear like that it's another level of cruel what mm-hmm. happens to him and uh, why do they do that what do you think that 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 gets as part of their plan or is it literally just like retribution. Well, I they don't like this doctor being around, sneak snooping around mm-hmm. to start. So I think also I don't know. The more broken he is, the less of a threat he'll be because they they still need him as a witness yes. to bear witness to whatever is going to happen. Um, I don't know. But uh, Blanc and Susie start having telekinesis conversation, and I didn't I didn't quite get when they said that Susie went off book in the dance, and that's why Sarah was hurt there. Yeah, I didn't quite get it, but I really loved that they have this conversation, and it's all telekinesis except for the line. Susie says, why is everyone so ready to think the worst is over? (laughs) That's a fucking scary line. And then uh, their conversation ends in French here. And Blanc tells her earlier, like, you need to learn French. It's, what does she say? It's like the language of dance or something? Yeah. So anyway, it's just Susie's getting more and more powerful as we go along here. And as uh, Klimperer is having visions of his wife. He's having these flashbacks. Um, Susie is seeing the, that manifesting ball of energy, like 
during the day now as well. Or like while she's awake, not just while in her dreams. Um, right. So whatever that was that Madame Blanc put on her feet and her hands during that first dance recital um, is like coming to fruition, I guess, and growing. It's representative of her power. Also, I think that Susie is wearing um, Mia Goth's robe. In these, oh, cool. When they're having the conversation, that tele- uh, telekinetic conversation, um, which is, once again, her, like, taking things from people around her and building them into her herself. Yeah, as we see throughout this movie, it's that, like, the idea of rebirth, it always has a cost, basically. Mm-hmm. And that in this world you grow by destroying someone else or something else. And that's how you gain your power. Yeah. Everything has to be, uh, if you're feeding on somebody, it's not as, what is it? It's not a zero sum game. Like the, your powers have to come from some somewhere. And yeah. it's by taking that you can grow powerful. Yeah. Are you ready to get into the, yes finale here yes Um, so they take the old man inside the coven and uh one of the he they strip him down nude and he's lying down inside this altar room this set is so cool with the big staircase leading down to this dance floor and they immediately eviscerate some woman and like rip her guts out who is was this one of the dancers um, is it, uh, I don't know who Mia it Goff? is, but, um, was it Sarah? I don't know. Yes. But, oh, it was. Okay. Yeah. It's gross. It's gross. Also, we get our one, our one dude witch here. <laughs> the, the fact that he's singing in like Gregorian style vocals <laughs> it just adds so much to this ending here um what's this dude's story the one dude which i don't know but where has he been this whole time like what is his i don't know he he has not been here before um and this is where like we we finally get to really see what's going on with Marcos and the hands growing out of her and everything. And I think it's interesting that Blanc tries to give Susie an out at this point and says that like, it has to be pure. Susie has to be willing to do this. And it's, oh, we have uh, kind of in the middle, you have Mia Goth and Chloe Grace Moretz, Patricia, who is now all desiccated and, like half mummy or something uh, standing and just, I would assume begging for death at this point. Um, Yeah, I think so because we'll see in a few minutes that it's basically what happens. <laughs> so uh, Marcos, what'd you think of the decapitation, the 80% decapitation yeah, the, the most- of Blanc? <laughs> that was pretty cool yeah it was it was badass marco says if you accept me 
you must put down the woman that bore you, death to any other mother. And then that, we get like the red light, and you see Susie's mom, and like the the demon shadow hand that appears over her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, okay, this is, have, when was the idea of Mother Suspiriorum introduced in this movie? Um, I mean, it's, I think, isn't it right from the beginning? Like, they talk about Mother of Tears, Mother, like, part of her disjointed well, babbling. This is, yeah, okay, that might have also been, is that in oh. German, in the psychiatrist's office? Oh, it might be, yeah. That's when I didn't have subtitles. <laughs> but yeah, the because Argento's movies, Argento has, what is it, the Mother Trilogy? Yes. With Mother of Tears and I can't remember. There's a few others. So anyway, this just, the Suspiriorum part, it kind of comes out of nowhere for me. So Marcos is trying to sacrifice Susie to take her body. But little does she know that Suspiriorum has also marked Susie. Or Susie claims to have been Suspiriorum from the beginning what what do you think is going on here was Susie marked from birth for this as her mother seems to believe she was or because of what her mother believed did she grow into this right like has she accepted that this is her role because of you know being brought up that way there's uh like a mirroring almost of the um, the drapey outfit that Mother Blanc is wearing and that Susie is wearing, but Susie's is like black and sheer, and uh, Mother Blanc's is red and like not see through, but like the neckline looks the same. And there's something about like motherhood and false mothers and like taking your your part in this process i feel like like she's stepping up into it um i i don't know if she was meant to be it or if she just has accepted it it's hard to tell mhm but this the makeup on this thing suspiriorum mhm badass <laughs> I think this demonic creature that we get looks so cool. Just walking around, giving everyone the kiss of death who voted for Marcos. Uh Uh-huh. And then the head explosions start. (laughs) All these people is, oh my God, this, this escalates so big in the best way that like the evil dead remake escalates to or i i just love when a horror movie gets to that point of like fever level chaos Mm -hmm. and after as cold and as distant as so much of this movie feels like this is almost a relief because you're like oh all of that tension that's been building up it is literally coming out now. Yeah, and we get like we get color. We get tons of red 
now mm -hmm. in this. And this movie has been so drab for so long. I will say, I'm usually really not a fan of doing slow motion without speeding up the film rate. So mm -hmm. you get the choppy slow motion. It kind of works for me here, and it kind of doesn't. Okay. I do. Th do you think it was a budgetary reason where they had to explode so many heads that in order to get it to look right, they had to cut the frame rate down? I thought it was an artistic one, like because of the way that it makes everybody look like they're moving very frenetically. Um, I think the dancers who were writhing and headbanging and going on their knees and sh yeah, throwing their torsos around, mm -hmm. I think it works really well for them. And it yeah. adds an unsettling detachment of normal human movement. And it feels, I mean, this is like exactly pegging me for my age, but it felt like an Nine Inch Nails music video. <laughs> Or okay. or maybe a tool video, like with the stop motion animation. Right. Like it felt like that exact late nineties. Whereas they did it before to do the slow motion of Klimperer walking home um in the snow drifting across him, and it feels like a one car Y movie then. Right? It feels like the that portion one car Y, the filmmaker. Um, in the mood for love and twenty forty six. My blueberry I'm just gonna, nights. I'm gonna keep shaking my head no at you. <laughs> Editor's note: There's gonna be some very minor everything everywhere all at once spoilers. So skip ahead twenty seconds if you don't want to hear those. Okay. So the the portion in um, everything everywhere all at once or every yeah yeah um, where she is the the actress and he was like wearing the tuxedo and he's also been successful. Yeah. That, that's a riff on those movies. I see. Like it's it a did, very... it did. It did work for me there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's oftentimes to accentuate action directors will do it. And I mm -hmm. think it, it can look cheesy. I think here it is mostly artistic decision. I just still struggle with it sometimes. Yeah, I can um, definitely see it. It takes you out of the film because it is like a very filmic technique where you can see the creator's hand uh, yeah. at work. It feels very movie-ish. Yes. Uh, Susie tearing her chest open. What? What is inside of Susie's chest? That There's I... some kind of orifice that's black and... And it it looked like it wanted was like hungry for souls or something. Mm -hmm. That's just one of those images that I always love is when somebody like does that. It's I've been obsessed with there's a few panels of the Sandman comic where uh somebody peels the, the skin off their rib cage and I've always loved that. Yeah, there's a great one in uh Trick or Treat some skin peeling similarly. Oh yeah. 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 So Susie's now the new mother. And I, I think 
the way this movie ends with the reign of the new mother, who does seem to be a mother of mercy, but also terrifying power, I think it's really fascinating. So, and it starts with Susie, this real melancholy note as she walks onto the altar and asks the women, what do they want? And they say death. Mm. And she, it's like a, a mother's embrace of like a, a touch to your face and then just lights out. It's very peaceful coming from this movie to have these things here at the end. And the way that like she lets them lovingly drop, right? Like, like petals from a flower or something is the way that it made me think of it. Very, because it feels poetic at this point. It looks like a nice way to go. Yes. So, um, yeah, and like basically we're at the very end of this movie here now. And so it's, time has passed and now every dancer is now speaking French inside the dance school. Mm-hmm. Just to mark her like her and Blanc's Blanc's influence and like the new mother's reign. Blanc lives? Question mark. Um because when she puts her head back on, she starts blinking and, and gasping. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That. I was wow. like, I I don't know if they just throw her body away, or does she wind up in a Marcos like state now, where she's in com- some kind of like half life, right? Or does she become the Harry Potter character, nearly headless Nick, uh-huh. and just roam around the school haunting it? Um. Okay. Didn't. Forgot about this ending. So we had the story of Doctor's wife who disappears. I uh, I was not ready for this ending here. And so Suspiriorum taking pity on this man, especially after what they did to him by creating a false vision of his wife returning. To give him this gift of the truth and it's a terrible gift like to tell him that like she died in a concentration camp of the cold but the part that hit me was like she had two friends who had she had befriended mm-hmm. and they made her feel not alone and her last thoughts were of you at a concert in the first time you held her hand like just this part absolutely crushed me i was i was crying a lot at the end of this movie it's and it's such a good like gear shift of from the insanity uh, that you've wanted to release, you've wanted something visceral to happen and then it does. And then it shifts back into the purely emotional stage of just two people talking. I think yeah. it, it, it makes it really but, powerful. And we finally get some mercy in this movie though, especially at the end when she says we need guilt and we need shame, mm-hmm. but not yours. You've, You've been through too much, sir, and takes it away. It's just, it's it's a very powerful thing because I think it gives you hope for Susie's reign as the new mother mm-hmm. that maybe she will be like she will be the right mother, the one that will help this coven and elevate it. Ah, okay. I had Mark Marcos would not have any mercy on this man. No. And 
it feels like Blanc would have used him to her own ends, but in a much more kindly manner. And so maybe Susie is the happy medium, right? Like she's the elevated version. I think so. I mean, still terrifying. And she has like the power of a God. (laughs) Yes. She she exploded about eight heads so far. (laughs) Um, What do you think of the very ending shot here where it seems to be a modern day shot now and things are happy in sunshine and there's a family playing around and we zoom in on the pillar and it's still, there's still the divide between the two lovers, uh, their initials carved on the pillar. Well, and I didn't know, is that supposed to be like life goes on and... Uh, even in this place where he had all this mourning and there was death, like you can find some kind of life. And the woman who walks past is carrying a book that says like the great mother or something on it. (laughs) Oh, interesting. I didn't pick up on the book. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, I feel like it's, it's trying to leave you with some kind of optimism here on the end of this it's the only sun we've seen in the entire movie like it's the only only sunny scene even the flashbacks to the farm are all um it's gray and dour looking right so this is like the only kind of nice warm scene that we've gotten to, a chance to see hmm yeah so what do you rate it what do you rate this movie it's really good. It is long. It's a little dry at times, but I'm I I was into it. It held up really nicely on a rewatch. This is a this is a 4 out of 5. I think it's a great movie, excellently shot, and the the ideas and themes that it presents are really interesting and there's a, a lot to talk about. And clearly, as we've gone on for a very long time talking about this movie. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like you... we haven't really cracked it. Like, there's still a lot more that you could say. Oh, on I know, like, because we haven't... Personal... We didn't even bring in, like, the geopolitical nature of this, because we're not smart enough to do that. But someone right. else could. And I'm sure there's another hour and a half conversation to be had about that. Or the fact that um, when we do see Klimperer's wife, she is played by by Jessica Harper, who was in the original Suspiria as Susie. <laughs> like, really? Yes. Did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, that's fun. Like, once again, is that like Tilda Swinton playing two roles, or is there some kind of continuity implied between these worlds now? I do like to think that it's just kind of the director fucking with the idea of identity. Yeah. I don't know. What, what would you give this movie? Uh, it, uh, it's a strong four stars out of five. Yeah. Um, I think it is. I was worried for a long time that it was going to be too pretentious. And that's kind of why I'd stayed away from it for so long. Um, not that I didn't want to see the original remade because I'm always down for a remake. Uh, in theory. Yeah. Well, like our Argento fans love Argento. Yes. And so if you announce anything that touches his work, 
there's going to be backlash against it. Yes. And so I, I think this movie definitely suffered from a lot of that. But like I said at the start, it's not trying to be Suspiria 76. It's it's trying to be its own movie. Yeah, for sure. So. All right, you want to take a little break? Cool. Get all those yawns out, Sean. Yep. Do you need some some dexedrine and nicotine to <laughs> to perk yourself up? A couple of eye drops and I'll be good, bud. <laughs> Showtime. So up next, we're going to be talking about All That Jazz, 1979 movie directed by Bob Fosse. And this one stars the wonderful Roy Scheider, who about a year ago I told you I wanted to watch more Roy Scheider movies. And here we are. So, Josh, why did you choose this movie? It is simply one of my favorite movies. It's been on my, uh, I think it's the only consistent one on my letterbox, you know, where you put your your faves. Yeah. It's it's been up there for a long time. When did you see this first? Oh. Like maybe 12 or 15 years ago, something like that. It's been quite a while. Okay. And why what pulls you into this movie so much? I think it is the horrible horrible man at the center of it. <laughs> <laughs> There's something in me. Good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that's your take of this character. Yeah, no, he's the worst. He's, okay, he good. absolutely sucks. Like, <laughs> At least we're on the same page about that. Yes. But I think that there's something the... I recognize both the drive in him, but also the excesses. And it feels like if I was totally unhinged, that I could become that person. And so it's like a cautionary tale. I see. Because you saw this movie still in your party days yes so you saw some parallels here that that would be scary to see parallels between yourself and this yes character. but i mean he's definitely like a uh to the extreme version yeah now what else has bob fossey done bob fossey did um let's see cabaret i believe sweet charity um he did star 80 a couple years after this um, I've never seen any of his movies. Uh, I've seen Cabaret, which is great. Um, oh yeah, he also did Lenny, which in this movie becomes the comedian, uh, the film that he's making about Lenny Bruce. Who was so, the, who was the comedian in this movie? As his name Robert Gorman, I believe. Uh, but he's playing Lenny Bruce. Cliff Gorman, I'm sorry. Interesting. It was... Uh, it's interesting how I thought that stand-up bit was such shitty stand-up at the start of this movie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then by the end, the fact that they keep going back to it again and again as like a thematic story structure for this. Yes. By the end, I was more into it than I was at the start. And it was also interesting to watch the editing process where the first cut of the comedian, we just see basically just the one shot of his face. And it's, it's really boring to watch. 
And then mm-hmm. over the course of the movie, we get more and more shots from like a balcony shot showing the stage in a wide form and then some audience reactions. And you see this movie come together. And the weirdness. So this is some of the stuff that I don't know if you really grasp, if you don't know any of the, the context, the, the strangeness of Bob Fosse recreating a movie he already made within this movie with the actor who originated the part on stage. So Cliff Gorman played Lenny Bruce in kind of a stage version of what would become the movie Lenny, but he got passed over for Dustin Hoffman in the movie. But Bob Fosse brought him back to play that part in here. So Cliff Gorman is playing Dustin Hoffman, playing Cliff Gorman, playing Lenny Bruce. Can I tell you how little context I have for this movie? <laughs> is it is it zero? Here's what I know about Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. <laughs> I am okay. a hurricane. Listen to yourself. Whoa, you know those lyrics? I used to know them. I used to be able to do it. Right? That, that is a that's a karaoke trick right there. Right. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right. You get nice. me. You get yep. me. That would be a fun karaoke song. And the fact that Bob Fosse is making this movie, which reflects his own life to such a degree that he's casting his former lovers in the roles of his lovers that he abuses throughout this movie. And the women came back to work with him after he had dumped them to be part of this movie. That's insane. It's icky. It's weird. Yeah. The whole thing okay. is, is weird. So this is autobiographical to some extent. Yes. It's interesting to make a movie where it's like, Hey everyone, aren't I a huge piece of shit? <laughs> yeah. That's how <laughs> one of my notes was like, this is a wild movie to have made. About yourself. Yeah, I I, I could see someone else making this, but to make this about yourself, hey, I I respect the self-awareness. Yeah, and I think for him also, it is uh, definitely looking at his fears of his workaholism, his uh, substance abuse, and his womanizing, driving him away from his family, and all of these things pulling at each other to where he doesn't actually get to devote himself fully to any of them. Um, I think that's very astute. And it feels like something uh, that you would have to be very, either very mature or very immature to make. <laughs> and it it depends on if you think that you're the hero of the movie. Although with the way that this ends, I feel like he has a, a better understanding and a grasp on what's going on. Uh, than that immature take would would be. Yeah, I, I think by the end of this movie, he comes to grips with a lot of things in his life and what's important, what was a waste of time, mm-hmm. what I should have been pursuing instead. Um, some people shouldn't be parents. This guy's one of them. <laughs> He shouldn't, 
It's like if if you want to be an astronaut, you know you're going to dedicate every single living moment of your life to being an astronaut. There's no room for a kid in there. Right. I just I I don't know. Don't do it. Same with like chefs. If you want to be a chef, don't also have dreams of starting a family. Just doesn't make sense. You're just going to be a shitty parent. Mm-hmm. And I I think that that speaks like for me that's part of the connection to the movie is that was definitely one of my fears is trying to live like the art life and pursue artistic goals while having a family. Uh, Can you actually do both? So you saw this 15 years ago. So you had a child by the time you saw this movie. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Did you always want kids growing up? Oh, when I was younger, I wanted like 12 kids. <laughs> really? Well, no, I wanted it. There was a table that I saw that seated 12 people. Yeah. So it would have had to have been, uh, I guess, eight kids. Because my parents, me and my partner, and then kids to fill it up. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's like in it's the a, office when Michael Scott says. Okay, next. So, what's your name? That's me. Hi, Michael. I'm Ed. Well, what's your favorite subject in school? Recess. Recess. So, tell me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be married and have a hundred kids so I can have a hundred friends and no one can say no to being my friend. Uh... Oh, okay. Well, uh, nice talking with you, Michael. Back to you, Miss Trudy. (laughs) (laughs) You pegged me there, Sean. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, What else? Roy Scheider is excellent. What What have you seen Roy Scheider in, aside from Jaws and... Marathon Man, I think, are the only other things I've seen him in. Sorcerer. Oh, right, Sorcerer. Sorcerer is badass. Mm-hmm. We should we should talk about Sorcerer sometime. That movie is basically just uh, a Top Gear travel episode, but like to the uh, nth degree. Yeah, it's so I. That movie is very Michael Mannish, where it's just like, watch some dudes who are experts in things get down to work. Yes. Um, I've also seen him in, in uh, Blue Thunder, The French Connection, uh, The the Seven Ups, which is kind of the sequel to The French Connection. Um, obviously, the first two Jaws, Jaws is. Um, night game. Do you ever see that? Uh, he was the he's the narrator for Mishima: A Life in Four Chapters. Um, a guy at a bar told me to watch Mishima years ago, and it, it's been on my computer for years. Yeah. It's one I, I I'll, I'll get around to it maybe in a couple more years. <laughs> it's, um, that's an intense one. I've never seen French Connection. 
Oh. Yeah. And I like. Oh, Sean, it's a great guys doing stuff movie. I know. I like guys doing stuff. And I like cars driving around on roads and off roads. Oh. And heist things. There's a whole sequence where the cops take apart the car looking for the heroin. That's like the most famous. Ooh, you know how I like things being taken (laughs) apart. Yep. Yeah. It's very cool. So we should double feature the conversation and the French connection. The French connection. Because those both yeah. have looking for things and taking things apart scenes, right? Yes, they definitely do. <laughs> and they're both they're both dude movies. Those I would say those are very much classic dad kind of things. They're great. Well, I'm thirty five, so I'm 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 getting real into the dad movies now. Yeah. <laughs> it's you enter that stage of life where everything becomes about logistics where like if i if i go to an amusement park now uh i'm not filled with awe at like ooh look at this wonderland they built i wonder how many contractors it took to build it and <laughs> what did that situation look like <laughs> i know i i i look at like a a pinball arcade and i just see like instead of thinking like, oh what glorious way to just like spend time i just wonder like how often do these machines break down who do you get to repair a pinball machine (laughs) how do you who even knows how to work on these machines anymore you must have to like call a guy in from arkansas to fly out here and fix this shit right yeah or just logistics travel plans uh Mm -hmm. amount of steel required to build an airplane just all this shit yeah (laughs) it's like that there's there's a uh as we're both nearing me more so middle age there's like an engineer brain that kicks in i feel like with many guys and that's just that's what your life becomes is suddenly wondering about man how much water does it take to to water a golf course (laughs) too much too much too much come on golf yeah stop building golf courses in the goddamn desert golf at least here uh they build them and there's already greenery there but they're killing the biodiversity yeah i don't i'm not a golf course fan no put in tennis courts (laughs) how is that better (laughs) <laughs> it's not but i am interested in pickleball i hear a lot of pickleball talk and i i want to try it I, i've heard of the pickleball uh it's one of those things like frisbee golf to me like i i'm aware that it's a thing that people do and can have fun with but i don't know if that's how i want to spend my saturday i called I called it frisbee golf in front of Connie's husband and I was embarrassed because they don't they call it disc golf. If you call it oh. frisbee golf you sound like a real asshole. <laughs> like you're you're talking down to it like like oh that's the game with frisbees. I guess cuz I was introduced to it from Seinfeld and Costanza mm-hmm. calls it frolf. And, yeah, so it's going to say it's frolf. But I think you'll get the shit beat out of you if you go up to a bunch of dudes and say, you guys playing some frolf. (laughs) So what do you think about 
off the off the bat here, this audition process. Uh, I uh, first I really like the light bulb title card. I think it's okay. great. There's way too many people on this stage. Way too oh, many yeah. people, and this just looks like a mess to watch. A hundred fifty people dance and slowly pick people out. There's one poor guy <laughs> who's <laughs> wearing you talking about? he's wearing a black t-shirt, and this poor man looks bewildered on stage. <laughs> he's he's trying, he's doing his best. But he's behind every move. He's never done a dance move before in his life. I don't know why he's there. <laughs> yep. I know exactly the gentleman you're talking about. <laughs> it looks like what I would look like if I was trying to do this. Right. I'm like, this This man is not a professional dancer. <laughs> and then he when does it gets, not fit in with the rest. When it gets to the singing part of the audition, everyone's like profusely sweating. This just looks like sweaty and gross. Uh, I really appreciate that, that they did not subject us to the singing. Right. Yeah. Like there's nothing that I want. Well, uh, in that they subject us to a lot of singing in this movie. So we don't need any more. <laughs> um, also, I just want to point out that he got into the shower with a lit joint in his mouth. And that confused me. It confused him, too, because, you see, he, he takes it out and shakes his head like, what the fuck's going on? And what's, yeah. what's he taking? He's taking this, like, Dexedream, which is, like, some uh, stimulant that they use now for ADHD. Yeah, it's Or it's, it's an speed. amphetamine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just speed, eye drops, Alka-Seltzer, Showtime. That's the morning uh, ritual. Yep. <laughs> and I don't know if an entire scene goes by where he does not have a cigarette in his mouth in this movie. Okay. One that I, I I like to think that you chose this movie because of my complaints that cigarettes never have any um, consequences in movies. Uh huh. And so right off the bat. When I people start coughing when they're smoking in this, I'm like, oh, cool, it's showing it, not knowing that that's like <laughs> the entire point of this movie is yes. the slow death of drugs, drinking, and cigarettes combined. What do you think about the uh, the attention to detail during the choreography? Like, because we start off with that big shot um, of all the people on the stage, uh, and then he focuses in on people's hands and on their feet, like these kind of very beautiful gliding mo movements as he winnows it down to who's actually going to be in the cast. It shows me that I don't know anything about this because I guess Suspiria <laughs> when there's, she's like, Oh no, hold your hands a little, not on your face, just like two inches off your cheek. Like you're cuddling a little baby dove oh, or something yeah Wait, what the hell does that mean <laughs> I, I just, does that really matter if your hands are next to your face versus touching your face or any of these little things and i don't know also 
what's the point of teaching at this point in the audition process? Because I feel like to you see st- how they take direction. Okay, well, you got me there. Yeah, <laughs> that's. Uh, I'm reading the book about the making of Mad Max Fury Road right now. Okay, and instead of a traditional audition, um, they had these four-hour workshops where George Miller, the director, would go in with a pair of actors and uh, work with them together. And then he had the same kind of audition for the cameraman, even. Like, as a cameraman, you normally go in and show your reel. You don't do a physical audition. But he set up, like, a mock desert environment in a studio with fans blowing and dust blowing around. And uh, had stand-ins for all the actors. And he was talking to the cameraman on an earpiece. And... He would send them in there for like two, two, three, four hours at a time and say, okay, film this, film this, um, and to figure out how they would work together under these circumstances of taking this show out into the desert rather than just trusting they're real. So I know I know that movie is beloved, mm-hmm. but do you think in 10, 20 years that movie will get the status that it really deserves, which is one of like the most incredible movies ever made. I think so. I think that appraisal like among film people has already started. The There's the quote that I come back to all the time where my guy, Steven Soderbergh says, if I had tried to make that movie, first of all, people would be dead. Second of all, we'd still be shooting it. <laughs> I know. Just watching the behind the scenes making of stuff on that movie is hilarious and terrifying. (laughs) Like the fact that they actually had people on 15 foot poles (laughs) bouncing back and forth between cars and trucks and everything. It's just, it's so nuts. And I know they're making Furiosa, but I still feel like we might never get another movie like Mad Max again. Oh no, I think it is. Everything that it went through, it went through years and years of development um, that just can't be recreated, even if you are the same team. Like, that thing gestated for so long that they had time to think about every aspect of it. And you just don't get that on even a film that comes out six or seven years later. God, like the intensity of work that they put into it. It's so good, and it's, like, perfectly stripped down to just like bare bones plot story dialogue. Ah, I wish, I wish I had seen that twice in theater. I saw it once. I wish I had gone again. I do too. Um, Victoria Potter, is this your home number? Oh, good. Uh, (laughs) one woman says, maybe I'll fuck him and he'll pick me. Someone else says, honey, I did fuck him, and he never picks me. Yes. She's tone deaf, Joey. With those legs, who cares? <laughs> these, uh, these are just a couple of the starting lines of me not liking this guy. <laughs> um, Can we also... What, what do... He has his wife and daughter at the audition, his estranged wife. And uh, I... 
I think the daughter character is so incredibly tragic and heartbreaking in this movie that mm-hmm. it's it's I I find it extremely fucked up that this womanizer who is abusive with his power and who's manipulative is encouraging his daughter to go into the same field that he knows how women are treated. And yet he's encouraging her to pursue this dance and to pursue this life where he knows a director just like him will look at her like a piece of meat. Yeah. Do you think that really the John Lithgow character is any better of a person uh, when we meet him later as the as another director, like no, I think he's just earlier in his career. Yeah, <laughs> he's just he, he hasn't he hasn't had the complete taste of power yet. Yeah, but no, I and so I think to bring it back into Suspiria, um, what I really took away from both of these movies uh, is that to create. To create a star, to create one actress who becomes a superstar, how many tens or hundreds of other actresses have been grinded up along the way? Or to create a mother witch, how many women have been sacrificed along the way? Right. Just to elevate that one person up and to get that one person above it all to some sort of position of power. Uh, It's you know show business is brutal show business is all consuming and even if you are lucky enough to be the 1% or whatever of actors who book roles it still often will never be enough then because there will always be someone higher than you or someone else who has the power or someone else who gets the roles or a director who still treats you like shit and it's just uh it's a meat grinder, you know. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because uh Joe Gideon here is both part of the grinding mechanism and someone who is himself being willingly ground up as like he devotes his life to it. Yeah. No, it it it's tearing this guy apart and he has no idea. Yeah, what what do you what's your next note here after the audition? What do you think about the whole setup of the movie which is bounces back and forth between kind of real time and Joe talking to the the angel of death <laughs> in this fantasy realm? Yeah, I for about I don't know, 20 or 30 minutes maybe of this movie, I did think is this not a death scene, but is this just a reminiscent scene that he's he's mm-hmm. later on in life, he's on a different set or whatever. But then the way that she's lit and very like gauzy white lighting and has that glow about her. Um I, I quickly realize, especially as he starts coughing, that oh, okay, this is a some kind of angelic conversation that he's having. And I like it, especially for a movie like this that's a bit of a memoir. I think it's really appropriate to have some kind of narration, which is almost what this is, where it gives a it gives the character time to reflect back on things with hindsight. 
Uh, and I mean, it's a little on the nose, but that character is named Angelique. Okay. So I didn't, I didn't even, yeah. I, I'm really bad with catching names in movies. Yeah, I am too. Uh, but yeah. And so I had that, uh, I wonder what you thought about that. And that the daughter, Michelle is incredibly tragic. For sure. And like later on when she's dancing around with the mom or when he's dancing with her and they're talking, it just, I don't know. I feel so bad for this girl because dad's gone. Dad pays almost no attention. So what's the one way I can get dad to notice me to do the thing that he does? Mm-hmm. And uh, that... That's tragic on so many levels, because I think that happens to so many kids of just trying to get your parents' approval. And so you just, you emulate them, you know? Oh, yeah. And for better or for worse, you know, so if, if you're emulating your dad, who's like a super nice guy and you want him to notice how nice you are, then that's probably all right. But, you know, that's how you get like racist nine-year-olds because they're just emulating their parents and everything that they've been taught at home. Oh yeah. And it's another thread that I connected to with this for me of like trying to play music and connect with my dad in that way uh, and get him to see me as like something worthwhile. Uh, that's been like, you know, a lifelong push pull uh, in our story. Yeah. And We've talked about it, but has have you gotten that moment with him where you feel like you got that musical approval or whatever that you were after? Um, no, I've tried. I started making a documentary about this at one point and actually um, had my dad come down and we went on the radio together and did a couple songs. And I was like, that would be a great moment. And turns out, uh, I don't think that I can actually get that kind of fulfillment from from him. Like, at this point, I am the only person, like, I'm looking for that connection. And I can't make it, I can't will it from him. So I'm the only person who can actually um, satiate that need within myself. It's a hard lesson to learn. Yes, it is. And there were cameras rolling while I did it. So, whoa. Wait, so yeah. you you learned this dirt you played music with him at the radio and this is when you figured this shit out? It was like directly afterwards talking to him on camera. And yeah. Whoa. Yeah. And so this footage I, still I, exists? Yes. Yeah, I, I ran across it the other day when I was looking through my hard drives. Dang. And you were going yeah. to edit this? Yes. <laughs> that I admire your courage for even attempting that, knowing I knowing was, how your dad is and every except I bet your dad was thrilled big. Oh, yeah, I'll I'll be the center of attention for a documentary. Love it. Oh, of course he was. <laughs> of course. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> um so the Lenny Bruce character in this, I've listened to Lenny Bruce stand up and I understand like that he was important in getting people um, 
in the free speech movement, basically, mm. because he would be arrested for some of his his shows that he would do uh, because he would curse on stage or bring up taboo subjects on stage, much like this character is. But while I find him boundary pushing, I've never found him funny. No, this <laughs> this is bad stand up comedy in my book, which bad stand up comedy is like angry white man and it's like i'm not gonna tell jokes but if i just yell into the microphone like i'm pissed off about things that will yes. that will supplement for a punchline and yeah maybe back in 70s and 80s that worked but i know people love bill burr and he has some good jokes and some good comments but it's it's so abrasive and there's just too much anger everywhere else that's like i don't need it in my comedy so i definitely look for comedy to be silly and goofy and not not biting and angry like i used to like david cross's stand-up a lot and i watched whatever the one he did for netflix four years ago and i thought it was awful it was just he was like trying so hard to to offend people and like that's that's how he was going to get his point across was by saying extremely non-taboo things and being shocking and it just it did nothing for me yeah it's um i've definitely cooled on that sort of comedy um as i've gotten older which is weird because i feel like uh like George Carlin always had kind of a bent like that, but then definitely aged into a place where he was solely relying on that. Uh, and I remember like the difference between listening to Carlin's 70s stand-up albums versus his his later ones was shocking to me. And I'm like, I, I don't need all that that anger in my comedy. Like, if I'm looking for anger, I'll, I'll go listen to Henry Rollins' rant about something or something else you know <laughs> yeah i like silliness like teacher's lounge kind of improv or andy daly or paul f tompkins-esque stand-up mm -hmm. stuff like that where it, it's it's often less about real stuff and it's more just going into somebody's imagination and all the weird shit that they can come up with i don't I don't need political analysis with every single stand-up set. Yes. There's enough places for that in the world and too few places for pure joy, I think. Definitely. So, I, I like, Joe asks his staff, he's like, about the comedian, he's like, does anyone got any ideas? And Stacy says she really likes it. And then he says, who asked you? I'm like, you did. <laughs> you just asked everyone if they had any ideas, dick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, the line, do you think Stanley Kubrick gets depressed? That made me laugh. And supposedly, and this is like a full circle thing here. Um, Stanley Kubrick, when he saw this, said it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. Stanley Kubrick also uh, screened Eraserhead for the cast and crew while they were making The Shining. Because he wanted that same sense of fear. Now, in this movie, 
um, Joe's ex-wife is played by a woman named Leland Palmer. David Lynch, who directed Eraserhead, would have a character named Leland Palmer in Twin Peaks, both the original and the uh, the continuing series. It's all mixed up together, huh? Yeah. So I don't know what those connected dots mean, but I find them interesting. Are you going to mm-hmm. make me watch David Lynch one day? Oh, yeah. Be, At some point we have to. be a heated episode. <laughs> we'll do something like a little more normal. Yeah. Let, let me, let me know story. when we do a normal episode of this show. <laughs> uh, Twister and Con Air is pretty normal. That's pretty standard, yeah. <laughs> um, Joe has a, a tube amp clock. Yes, made with Nixie tubes. Those are so cool. It seems very impractical, but awesome. Yeah. Um, every time I watch this movie, I look up Nixie tube clock. Um, although they're normally in orange, I cannot seem to find them in green. I don't know. It's got to be expensive, right? A couple hundred bucks. That's that's, you, you ex- that's expensive for, for a clock. You can buy a kit for like 80, I think. But then I'd be worried that I'd blow myself up. Soldering? Nah, you'd be all right. No, not with soldering, with, uh, you know, the, the amperage that you're putting through it afterwards. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember in school, we were taking apart disposable cameras to learn about circuitry and everything, and the professor says, Oh, God. All right, make sure you uh, discharge the capacitor before you go poking around. And right as he said it, some kid clearly decided it'd be a good idea to touch the capacitor and you just hear him kick the desk really hard oh my God. as the shock runs through his body. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> that stores up the, the juice for the flash. It does. It does. Yeah. yeah. This poor woman who just wants to be wants to be a dancer. Later he's like, I can't make you a great dancer. I can't even make you a good dancer, but I can make you better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she also she wants a nose job, and she asks if he if she's gonna be, can be a movie star, and he's just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> he tries to weasel out of it first. He's like, you know, the business is so, and then she's like, no, but what do you think? And he's like, no, no, you don't. Have. Yeah. Oh, the song that's playing. Uh, it's the perfect way to say I love you when his wife walks in and sees him with another woman in bed. That's pretty funny. Was it his That's wife? That's his girlfriend. girlfriend. Okay, I, his... I got I got his whole harem of women a little mixed up at times. Yes, Katie is his girlfriend. Um, is it Audrey is his wife? Yeah, Audrey's his wife. Katie Jagger is his girlfriend, played by the great Anne Reinking, um, who... I I love her dancing in this movie. I wasn't expecting like a burlesque dance on a polar bear rug. <laughs> also, I'm I don't know if I've ever seen an animal rug in person and that makes me okay with that. Nope, I'm totally fine not have, I used to have a cowhide rug is that you didn't have the cow's head attached to it, correct? 
No, no. It was in <laughs> very mid-2010s Chevron pattern, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's, it's different. Okay. To use a leather product versus using... The skinning like, a whole a, a animal? tiger. Yeah. Yeah. Or, and then just the tripping factor of having a head on a rug in the middle of your room just eating shit in the middle of the night when you're trying to go to the bathroom or whatever. Yeah, it seems uh, at best impractical. Let's see. The next one is the the flashback I got where Joe's doing his tap dance number. Yes. But after a bunch of women rub his face in their boobs and he pre-comes. <laughs> yes. That's <laughs> it's a formative moment in a, in a young man's life. Yeah, that... That might have an impact on you to have a room full of like what look like rich businessmen smoking cigars openly mocking you <laughs> <laughs> might have an adverse effect on you. And it's connected to your, your first like uh, interaction sexually with a woman. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, losing your virginity is probably going to be somewhat embarrassing, but. Not on this level. Yes. Um, my note in here was he sucks. Joe is the worst. <laughs> like, oh, is that, that because uh, she's not allowed to call a straight man from his phone, but he's y- he's allowed to date any woman. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. You're very generous with gifts and stuff. I just wor- wish you weren't so generous with your cock. That's a it's a good line. <laughs> He's right. It's a good line. <laughs> um, when Scheider's lying on stage holding a woman, she she gets yanked out of his arms, and there's a slide whistle sound. Oh, whoop. <laughs> <laughs> I just. Anytime you add a slide whistle into things, you're making comedy gold. <laughs> um, oh my so gosh. So what do you think about his daughter's... Like, his daughter wants to save him by... She thinks, like, just find a new mom. If we get dad to marry someone, I think that's, I think that's her game plan. What do you think? Yeah, I think that... She thinks um, that he'll settle down and, you know, I can only imagine that she has gone through um, a plethora of uh, replacement moms because Joe doesn't have good boundaries. No, that would be so hard for a kid. Yeah, I, I respect single parents who date a lot because it's got to be so tough. And to know when it would be okay to introduce your partner to your kid and always having that fear in the back of your mind that if that person leaves you, they're not just hurting you, but they might also be hurting your kid too, uh, must be very scary. And, uh, I mean, having gone through it a couple times... You feel like you're ruining your child every single time. Uh, you you had an experience where you're you had a good girlfriend that your kids liked. 
Yes. And it like, but it was traumatic to introduce them. And then it was traumatic when the separation happened. It's like, it's, it's never not going to be hard uh, when you're involving kids in your personal life like that. Yeah, that's tough. It's like you're, you're breaking up twice over. Yes. Ugh. You you people with kids, man, good on you for perpetuating <laughs> the species, but I I don't get I don't get how you do it. Uh very carefully, ideally. That's that's all I can say. That's the best I can do is to try to do it carefully and with uh with tenderness. TLC, right? Yes. Don't go chasing waterfalls. <laughs> wow. I went to Elvis and you went to uh, actual TLC. To actual TLC. <laughs> yeah. I could name two Elvis songs. Fools Rush In and You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog. Okay. Have you ever seen an Elvis movie? No, I don't think so. Okay. Have well, you ever been actually, to Graceland? Excuse me. Uh-huh. I saw Bubba Hotep. The, okay. <laughs> you look so disappointed in me. <laughs> Although I'm I'm happy that you've seen Bubba Hotep because that is a very good movie. It is. Very enjoyable. If you want to see JFK as an old black man, check out Bubba Hotep. <laughs> <laughs> they put a sandbag back here. Yeah. That's great. A lot of heart in that movie too, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. What do you think of this the song that the um the composer comes up with? Uh I don't know. Are you gonna have to remind me of the song? Oh, singing about the, the airplane and the snacks. Uh Oh, Take okay. your earbuds and plug them in. That whole thing. Uh, is this where he's he's like demonstrating the song to the producers? Yes. And he's up on the chair dancing and singing. The guy with the mustache, right? Yes. Okay. I I like this guy's energy, and I think he's talented, <laughs> and I really like the music and the band, and like his piano playing is great. Mm-hmm. But this is also defines what I don't like about musicals, which is that <laughs> I'm in your face and I'm looking at you and I'm being really big. And it's just too much. And it's too, it's too like circus line where it's just like, like drums banging around and just like a marching band going through it. It just, it's too bombastic. It's too much. It's too uh-huh. much. I need, it, I need less. Is it what you would call sweaty? Well, I mean, it, I no, I don't know. Everyone's it's very sweaty. It's not. It's like sweaty for me would be like you're trying really hard to like write lyrics that don't go well with a song or whatever, and so I don't know. It's I I get it. Like I get why. I, 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 do I get why people like it? I don't think so. I, I don't think I do. <laughs> I don't think I do. Because later on, 
watching the whole erotica performance, it's just, it's fine for 30 seconds, Mm -hmm. but it just keeps going and going and going, and I'm just, I don't care. I, I don't, I don't care. I don't, you're not, the choreography of interpretive dance, at least, like, I, I can put something into that. But this kind of choreography where it's just, like, big stage musical comedy, it doesn't do it for me. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, what am I supposed to be feeling when I watch this? And that's part of what I find so fascinating about this, because does he realize that the thing that he is devoting his life to and he allows it to tear him away from his family is someone else's night out that they'll forget about in a couple of weeks? Yeah, like, it's, it. what he's dedicated his life to makes it seem like he's producing a play that will be riveting and will change the way people think about their lives and will be mm-hmm. so impactful. And yet what he's producing is just a smut show. It just, it's just like, let's get tits and asses on the stage and, you know, let's, let's have some, Man-on-man love, some woman-on-woman love, some man-on-woman love. We'll get we'll get everyone aroused equally. I did like that one of the producers, when uh, when people start stripping off, he just goes, oh, there goes the family audience. <laughs> the uh, uh, line of, oh, now uh, Sinatra will never record it. Yeah. <laughs> but so, I don't know, like, the- what... When you see when you see musical numbers and musical comedy, what feeling does that give you that I don't get? I mean, normally I'm just impressed at the physicality of the dancers and the expressiveness of the human body. Like but there's a lot of very kind of staid normal sort of dancing that doesn't do a lot for me. Honestly, a lot of the dancing in seven brides for seven brothers is not very imaginatively staged, right? Like you get a lot that's kind of the whole crowd, like sort of doing the same thing. And it's, it's a little boring Um, stuff like that. But when it's well done, I think that it is for me, it is, it is riveting. Like to see that many people working in unison to create this illusion of movement, I think is impressive. I I really want you to watch climax now because it the choreography, especially the way Gaspar No moves his camera. There's such long shots in that movie that involve not only choreography of the dancers but choreography of the entire crew to move the camera Mm -hmm. and to get sets ready and everything that it's really, like you said before, put all of like the movie and art aside, just the logistics of it 
is incredible to think about. So you talk about Joe, like the thing that he's devoting his life to is ultimately kind of goofy and ephemeral. Uh, But when he's talking to Angelique, there's a point where he says, nothing I ever do is good enough. It's not beautiful enough. It's not funny enough. It's not deep enough. It's not anything enough. And that I very strongly identify with. Like, you know, I'm in the middle of making a movie right now and I want to rewrite it because I, I see so much more depth that could be in it, even though it's not meant to be that even it is the, you know, the movie version of let's do a little musical comedy. It's a, it's a little crime caper movie. There's some dorky jokes in it and that's what it is. And some fun editing. That's what it'll be. But there's something in me that like wants to make it great that wants to do that and i feel that that pull from him you got to be careful though because you you keep tweaking something and fucking with it and you uh it's like that committee that designed a horse and you get a camel uh you, <laughs> you, you you can tweak something so much that it it becomes nothing because you're trying to make it everything yes so that's definitely true. I get it. And with baking for a while, especially when I was on social media, I would never think my stuff was good enough or I'd see someone else's and think I, I still have so far to go and, you know, or like I, I suck compared to this person or I'm not doing this or I'm not creating. It's just, it's all bullshit, man. It doesn't, None of it matters, you know, it's just, you make, you make what you make and that's, that's what's right because that's what exists. That's, that's what you created. There's no, there are no what ifs because those don't even exist. It's just acceptance and moving on. It's a, it's a very like tricky thing and I don't have, I don't do it all the time, but learning that skill is so hard but sometimes things are good enough you know sometimes they are (laughs) you know the the pursuit of perfection i think is oftentimes an impossible one my baker my first my second baker boss used to tell me that uh baking is like running a race that never ends you'll never you'll never get to that point where you you figured it out You'll never get to the point where you've mastered it. There will always be another thing to learn, another thing to improve on, something else that can change. And that's just, that's life. That's like kind of the existential nightmare that it is to be human is that we don't get closure a lot of times. We <laughs> You don't get those like cinematic movie moments where like you you play music with your dad at a radio station and suddenly <laughs> your relationship is fixed. It's not, right. how, it's not how shit goes as, as much as we want it to. That's, uh, wow. That's harrowing both personally. And I understand it like mentally. Uh, it makes me think of there's, I believe it's the commentary for no country for old men where Roger Deakins is talking about, um, he wishes he could go back and reshoot it because he knows more now. 
like he wants to remake that movie. Right. He thinks the sh- the shots of them driving into the sunset during the the chase that happens early on um it, they're not good enough and he could do them better. And you're like, "Are you kidding me?" You know, you're as close to perfection as I would want. Uh I would be so happy if I could get to that level. But then on the other hand, I can't imagine that if I did that afterward, I would not be as happy. I would be, I would always see the flaws. Yeah. But do you want to turn yourself into George Lucas where you're going back 25 years later and adding CG wampus monsters walking around in your foreground (laughs) and all sorts of nonsense? Like, no, you you make the thing and then you move on in my oh, book. I like the idea of wampus monsters. I don't know what a, what a wampus monster I is. I don't know. But... It's just, I'm sure there's something called a wampus in, in the Star Wars universe. Uh-huh. There's got to be. <laughs> um, Roy Scheider's starting to look a little bit of a wampus. He's got, like, sweaty, pale, glazed eyes and, like, the red around his eyes the guy, the doctor, I thought the scene with the doctor who couldn't even speak because he's coughing yeah. so much while listening to Scheider was pretty funny. The the timing of the reveal that not only is the doctor smoking while he's doing the exam, but that Joe is smoking while he's getting the exam. Right. Like yeah. the, the timing of that is very funny. Yeah. Um, you know, just. There's a funny little exchange is uh, him and one of his girlfriends. Uh, I remember the blonde, the blonde with the TV show in Philadelphia's name because she meant something to me. Her name was Sweetheart. Honey? Honey. I don't remember. (laughs) So that's him and his wife, uh, his ex-wife. And he goes to her like seeking some sort of being consoled right like all these dancers are looking at him to make something and he's not happy with what he's making and so he goes to her thinking like she's going to give him a way out and she just spars with him and makes him go and do better and like that's he needs that in his life um and i think it's also really telling that even though Bob Fosse is the one who's making this movie and he himself was this womanizing creep. He does portray almost all the women as being very strong and like they are worth more to Joe than he ever knows than he ever acknowledges them for. And I think that's really interesting. Definitely. I, I think in a weird way, it's a progressive movie because it, it doesn't hold any punches as far as showing how shitty this guy is and what a misogynist he is. Yes. And yeah, in, in the end, I yeah, the women, I think, come out of this okay in this movie. And I mean, we'll talk about a lot of that later, I think. Um, so... Uh, during that whole rehearsal, one, wear your earplugs when you're indoors with a drummer. 
please. Mm-hmm. Uh, how badass is that drummer, though? Oh, the, during the whole... All these musicians are great. They're so good. And yeah. the drummer, especially, though, it's incredible listening to this guy and um, just the subtleties and the com- the complexity of some of the beats and everything and the energy. I imagine as a dancer, dancing with live music would have such a different energy and vibe as opposed to especially at this time just going off like a little boombox cassette in the corner of the room right that's i guess i never thought about it but like even when uh, his wife is practicing on her own she has the composer in there playing the piano pieces and he's like working on the piece as she's working on the dance to it so it kind of comes together uh and that's nuts like just sitting there playing piano for hours on end while people are dancing to it that seems like such a physically demanding thing to be doing oh you never think of for a piano player it seems so tiresome yeah especially to be like all right let's pick it up mid bridge in two three four and you just have to be able to start mid song on the spot and then also when you see him later he gets like, I, I don't remember the lyric, but he gets a lyric in his head and he's like, hold on, I can figure this out, I can figure this out. And he runs and he sits down at the piano and is just like instantaneously like, yeah. it's like, I think I got it. It's like, holy shit, how'd you do that? <laughs> I, I sometimes I call myself a musician and then I see actual musicians play and I'm like, oh no, I'm not one of you. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I'm pretending. That's, that's why. Right. Well, that's why I play rhythm guitar because mm-hmm. you tell me the chords and I'll play the chords and you do all the cool crazy shit and I'll just be in the background here, <laughs> holding things down. So um, let's see. Next scene I got is the wife and daughter do the top hat dance for him, and I just find this so creepy, especially. Everyone is so desperate for this guy's approval that even in his personal life, they're still auditioning for him. Oh, see, I see it as the one moment where they all share in this thing that they love because it's his girlfriend um, and the daughter. So it's like they've connected making this dance for him uh, because they know that he will love it. And their dance is sloppy and imperfect, but rather than like criticizing them or telling them, you know, to do better or whatever, he just sits there and watching this the other night, like it's one of the only times that he looks like he's actually enjoying something in the whole movie, that he looks like he's actually having a a real moment. Uh, It brought me to tears. This scene did. It's one of my favorite scenes in movies. I like your take a lot more than mine. <laughs> <laughs> but Mine's much more optimistic, but that I is can very definitely sweet, see yours too. But I'm also now, as you said before, I'm now worried about his daughter who's building this relationship with his girlfriend who, even if Joe is to live along, he's going to dump this woman. Mm-hmm. That's just his M.O., so, uh, 
But all right, I'll I'll, I'll take your optimistic reading, and it's <laughs> a nicer way to look at it. Also, I think Anne Ranking is phenomenal in this scene. Like, it's just such a kind of a casual dance that they're doing, but her physicality is oh my gosh! Her, like the way she can use her legs is it it is stunning to me that someone can move their body like that. See, I didn't pay a single fleck of attention to that. Okay. Which is interesting because I did in Suspiria. Yeah. So maybe if she was wearing red ropes tied around her body (laughs) instead of a top hat and black coat, I would have noticed her dancing more. Got it. (laughs) Uh, Now I know what to do to get Sean's attention. (laughs) Um, In California, everyone needs a car. My friend bought a Mercedes just to get to the bathroom. Everyone dies laughing, and I don't get it. It's like, it's it's not a good joke. No. <laughs> Why is everyone laughing? But I do like that the joke was so bad that it drops all has sound from the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's so bad that Joe has angina. (laughs) I did. I really liked this part, though, as the the sound all drops away and you get his footsteps and heavy breathing and especially the hands on that metal railing. And just that Mm -hmm. sound was so um, evocative and it just put me right there and. You know, dropping his cigarette on the ground and snapping the pencil in half and just, yeah, it's, I think it's a great way to show, especially when you're in a room full of people and then like shit starts to get weird for you or you start to feel really weird for whatever reason. Yes. It's very unsettling to be around a room of people like that and to, to try to like maintain normalcy as you know, something bad is happening. And just like, I think it's working on at least two layers where Joe's having, you know, the onset of a medical condition, but also his disconnect from the actual material. Like, I think it's really interesting that unlike Suspiria, we don't see the big stage production that he's ultimately working on, right? Like, we see all these bits and pieces, and what we get is not that great. Like, and... No, he says it himself, like that, that push up move that you're like in a push up position with the other dancer mm -hmm. and then you crab walk backwards away from them. Yeah. It doesn't look good. Yeah. And like none of this, it looks, it just looks like a bunch of people stripping their clothes off and randomly dancing around with a fog machine going like this, this does not seem to be well choreographed and he knows it. Uh, I don't know about that. Like for the erotica sequence itself, I feel like he put himself into that one, Mm. but the rest of the show, um, I, I I feel like he's trying to bring something to it. That's not there. You know, he's placing importance on it that it definitely does not deserve. So would a show like this, this would be, this would be looked down upon as smut, right? Like, there's there's no way this is playing on Broadway, a show like this. No, 
so this um what they're doing is what he was doing so the autobiographical portion of this is the show they're making within the show is in YLA right like that's the whole concept is they're flying cross country the actual show that he was making was Chicago so I mean that was a pretty successful show <laughs> it did pretty well so this this is his fictionalized version of making Chicago is there nudity in Chicago? I don't. I've never seen it on stage. You've seen the movie, though. I've seen the movie, which I don't recall any nudity. But the it does get very sexual with the um, pop six squish uh uh-uh, lipshits song. Excuse me. <laughs> so, are you not familiar with Chicago? Is what I'm taking from this. The, okay, I'll Pop, tell you what I know about six, Chicago. Squish. I know uh-uh. Cicero. I know Chicago was Buster Bluth's favorite movie briefly, and he's doing like a dance number with a mannequin, and then he comes back with a sword and decapi- decapitates the mannequin, and they say he also likes Star Wars. <laughs> and that's wait, Richard Gere is in Chicago? Yes. Gear. As the lawyer. The Mothman cometh. (laughs) Let's see here. Yeah, so we're going to the hospital now, right? Yes. The show's been postponed a couple months. Um. Oh, and then (laughs) the the Joe's trying to like still maintain the show, and so he tells people like he has a terrific idea for a new hospital number. Hold it, Audrey, hold it. Hospital number, hospital number. Just give me a minute. Stan, will you give me some room? How does the title Hospital Hop grab you? It grabs me. Great, great. I think I got it. I think he's got it. I got it. Stan, help me out, please. Hospital number. I got it. And he starts just playing the most like cocainey piano. Of just <laughs> he's on speed, just like. And his wife is doing like the goofiest dance to it as well. <laughs> yeah. So they move him into a room, and he's not supposed to be doing anything. What are people doing when they have those red napkins on their eyes and in their mouths? What's this hospital is like a debaucherous party. I've never partied as hard as they party in this hospital room. No, they are having... Uh, everybody else is having the time of their lives, and he is drinking himself to death. Like, literally going harder than he ever has before. Yeah. What kind of friends are these? I don't know, because there's no way that the only one, uh, Cliff Gorman shows up and just sits there and reads and talks to him. But everyone else is like dancing around, smoking with him, drinking, like you said, debaucherous. Why is that nurse massaging his thighs? Just so he can be... For for the joke? Just so he can be a creep? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Oh, uh, I... I, (laughs) the, The get well soon card that his daughter draws... Made me yes. laugh a lot, especially because his 
daughter underlines the word generous four times. Four and times. Says, I hear there's a lot of attractive nurses. And earlier in the movie, we had the phrase generous with your cock. It, it just all mm-hmm. felt very uncomfortable enough to make me laugh. Oh, okay. <laughs> I had never made that connection before, but yeah. The, the underlining of generous was just like, hey, dad, I hope those nurses are banging you hard. <laughs> <laughs> she just wants a baby brother oh, and her dad to settle down. I know. I know. This poor girl. This poor girl. You know, it's funny because I just thinking about this now. Um, and jumping ahead a little bit, Joe gets closure at the end. Nobody else does, though. Mm-hmm. His daughter, his he imagines he says something profound to his wife and girlfriend in the ho- in the hallway of the hospital, but he never actually has these moments with these people. So his his he never has like that closure moment with his daughter that will help her in the rest of her life. Right. And he even, in his fantasy version, she sings a song about how she'll be lost without him and won't know how to live her life without him. And, and then she's spirited away on the top of, on a, the top of a hearse. Right. Like, yeah. So, um, it just, that just kind of came to me that like, even, <laughs> even like at the very end, in a, in a way, it's like it's still a selfish story where, well, at least Joe got his closure, and so that's okay. I was like, but what about everyone else that he fucked over the years? Oh, but I think that's part of the point. I think so. No, I, I think yeah. it is. I think it is. Um, do you do you hate this balloon reviewer? On public access TV or whatever this is. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I think she's supposed to be like a big time reviewer or like represent a big time reviewer. I think so. Yeah. But it, it's, it's one of the dorkier things. Well, and just ugh, reviewers who have gimmicks. And so, like, this balloon thing is such a shitty gimmick. Yes. Oh, and then uh, we get the orderly shaving his arm and the repeated things of the the MC on the TV, who eventually becomes the MC for his death fantasy. Right. Uh, Wonderful friend, a great humanitarian, and... The one of the best people I've known for the past seventeen yes. years or whatever. Yep. Yeah. A great entertainer. Uh, <laughs> so as he's about to go into the operation, he hallucinates his wife and girlfriend, and very profound line says to his wife, "If I die, I'm sorry for all the things I did to you." And then to his girlfriend, "If I live, I'm sorry for all the things I'm going to do to you." Yes. Like it's a good line. He knows. He knows that he sucks. He, he knows he sucks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do is that in this next scene where we're getting um someone like on the calculator, the accountant running down the list of items. Is that Wallace Shawn? Yes, it is. A very young. Yeah, we get baby Wallace Shawn and baby John Lithgow in this movie. Yep. Huh? That's cool. And this is where the producers figure out that. 
if he dies and they don't stage the show at all, they stand to make half a million dollars without ever lifting a finger, basically. It's a good deal. Yeah. I'd take that deal. Um, and so now we're going to get the last, what is this? The last 20 minutes of this movie is this huge number, 25 minutes or so. I mean, there's one point where he kind of breaks out of this whole hospital hallucination when he's hanging out with the one orderly. Yes. But this, the ending of this is almost entirely like one big stage performance. Well, we have the, the big like black room performance where he's in the hospital bed and it's his wife, girlfriend and daughter do all these numbers for him. Uh, his daughter's dress is so long and so tight around her feet that she can she can take like six inch steps. Yes. This dress makes no sense to me from a logistical standpoint. Like, how can you walk in this? It's not meant to be walked in. It's meant to be you stand there and right. look good striking one pose and that's it. <laughs> and a bunch of burlesque angels sing... Who's sorry now? You didn't listen. You had your way, and now you must pay. Mm -hmm. And so after he's, like, chastised by all the women in his life, uh, he does, he runs away from the operation, <laughs> freaks out for a few minutes, and makes an old orderly sing to him, which I love, like... I think that's this is the other moment where he has some sort of joy in it is he's literally impressed with this man singing um what is it pack up your troubles in your old kit bag like there's something about him that just loves song and dance and show business that actually is you know very innocent the way I would relate to this is um i would look at this like a, a professional athlete who forgets to just enjoy having a game of catch and so this moment for is kind of like joe like having a game of catch and remembering the basics of why he why he got into this so long ago mm -hmm. it's like uh that ted lasso scene uh which one where the, I can't remember who it is that's having problems, but um, they take him back to like the local game, and oh, uh, Isaac, the defensive captain. Yes, yeah, and they get him to play pickup soccer. Yep. Yeah, yeah, man. I, it's easy to get way too far in your own head sometimes with certain things, and like I, my niece is only. Uh, 14 I think but she's very into softball and it was like on, over Thanksgiving um, throwing the ball and she was batting and stuff and she after every single swing she was like ah, I, was, I was too far back on my front oh I didn't transfer my weight I, I need to turn my hips more and I told her I was just like just just swing just relax <laughs> don't think about shit just just have fun and hit the ball. I, it, I think sometimes, especially parents nowadays, they make sports so serious that like even when you're 12 years old, 
they're like trying to like drill the fundamentals and technique and everything else in this. Like you, you got to remember to still make the game fun for kids. I think you forget that sometimes you the proverbial you. OK, I was going to say, because I'm I'm all about having the fun. Especially no, I, I know okay. you're the dad that goes out there and you tear out the bottom of your coffee cup, your paper coffee cup, to make a little miniature bullhorn. <laughs> and you yell, are you blind, ref? Get out <laughs> I know you're that guy. Yes, I'm, I'm that. You put up a nice front on this show, but I know what you're like. <laughs> when the cameras aren't rolling. Oh, that's true. We got a camera rolling right now. Um so here we are at the last 10 minute stretch with the the real psychedelic freak out death montage with all the singing and dancing and everything. Yeah. Um and that five stages of grief bit plays over him again as as he's walking around and before he goes there, there's that industrial area that's flooded, and he's kicking water in puddles. What is this room? Um, I think it's the engine room from the Nostromo, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's the hospital's reactor core. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I really like... I didn't like the music or the musical aspects of this movie until the end here. But I think this final number is really excellent. Okay. Whether it's the the two women in the suit that have like the the blood, the veins, mm-hmm. it's like the vein diagrams singing and just the energy of it all and this really reminded me of um, a moment that I mentioned when we watched uh, It's a Wonderful Life, which is the moment at the end where everyone is singing Old Lang Syne. Mm-hmm. And I said, if there is like a transition into death, and if there is like an afterlife, I would like it to be something like this. And I think that's exactly what all that jazz is also, is like that spiritual celebration where your cosmic energy or whatever is surrounded by all the people that you were friends with and all the people that you loved. And it's just like one last hurrah, one, one grand finale to send you off on your journey. And, uh, it's very powerful. I think the, the first time I watched this, I think I was, I was a little burned out by the time this played. And so I, I, I liked it. But I told you I was scanning through this movie last night, and so I watched about 15 minutes of the movie here or there, and then watched this entire end sequence, and I was I had tears in my eyes by the end of it. I think it's it's really really touching, and it's profound, and it's um, it's ex- it's it's facing that existential dread and fear that being human exist with and like that we're all trapped with and yeah I, I i just i think it's a really really powerful way to end the movie especially with that hard cut to the body bag zipping up oh that is one of the harshest hard cuts i've ever seen yeah 
So what do you, I mean, what do you think of this whole thing here? I mean, you have the, all that jazz vinyl. Yes. That's cool. <laughs> which, which has the, the closing number with Ben Vereen and Roy Scheider singing on it. Um, I think this whole thing, like the frenetic pace that it gets to and just everybody, it's like, it is his version of, of heaven. I think everybody's looking at him and all the people in his life are there to celebrate him. And then he gets to give forgiveness to his, his girlfriend for moving on. And, you know, it is this like, moment of closure that I would hope you would get uh, ideally before you pass away. So do you think, do you know about like the idea of like your brain releasing DMT? Yes. Upon death. Yeah. That just really like, I don't, I, I do believe in that. And I don't think, I don't think it would be this literal of a translation, but I do think a, your brain death DMT trip could have some kind of aspect of this. Yeah. That's, um, I was also thinking about the movie Jacob's ladder when, Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, the, the silver faced band members are pretty scary. They would fit well in, (laughs) in Jacob's ladder (laughs) and those weird revolving heads. That have like mirrors attached to to them. I also really like that the melancholy is overcome in this song, where it starts on a sad note of "I'm gonna die," and by the end, it's it's like a raucous celebration of like "I'm dying and this is it, and now it's time to go and move on." And you know that that floating shot backstage towards the angel was a really beautiful little moment. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I, I I didn't really get like a gut punch. It, it was shocking that hard cut to the body bag being zipped up. But at the same time, it was, it kind of felt like he had already left his body at that point. So it didn't, it didn't really matter to me that his body was dead now because he was already gone. Oh yeah, I can definitely see that. The uh, I don't know. That floating shot, he's floating towards her. He's floating towards the camera as well. And then like focuses on his eyes and it's the last thing you see before that cut. And there's something so like cynically kind of harsh after that rise of coming back to, Oh, this is all we are is, you know, right. This, and it does, it gives you the idea that these last few moments just happened in his brain while he was on the operating table before he died. Like, and it's, uh, and then what song comes up? There's no business like show business over his corpse. <laughs> It's like he could not resist one last little joke. And how wild is it that he made this movie that's autobiographical and then he dies in it? (laughs) That's wild to me. 
So yeah, was was Bob Fosse sick? Also, did, was he going through medical things? I don't think I don't think it was to this extent. Okay. I mean, clearly not because he didn't. You know. Yeah. I mean, I when I smoked cigarettes, this this fear of what Joe goes through was in me at all times. Yeah. Cigarettes were the there's like a medicine for a problem that they created. It, it's like they created the existential dread. And so then when you're feeling that anxiety, you smoke a cigarette to calm down, which is the thing that causes you your fear in the first place. It's a very weird head games that nicotine plays with you. Yeah, I would imagine. But thank you for finally choosing and showing me a movie where smoking leads to coughing and bad things. <laughs> you're welcome. So what? I feel like we should start with me. On what I give this movie before we go to you. Yeah, so that we and uh, it's a three and a half. It's an excellent movie, but my own personal enjoyment is it would have been like a three had this ending not really gotten me there, Mm -hmm. but the ending did get me there. So I like it. I'll rewatch it years from now probably and i imagine i will be i wouldn't say i was bored and i and i do like the fact that it's you're not watching the stage production Mm -hmm. you're watching the making of it which i think is more interesting to see the behind the scenes stuff as opposed to watching a movie like cabaret or the sound of music which is the complete production right but I still don't care for musicals. <laughs> I think that's just always going to be the bottom line for me. But I'm glad I watched this one. I really am. Well, I happen, and you. I happen to really enjoy musicals. And I love this one. It's, it is all the stars, five stars uh, for me, and a heart, because... It gets me in the heart every time I watch it in a different place, like a different section of the movie will speak to me. And it's a movie that has grown with me over the years, um, much like something like uh, Inside Lewin Davis. Like, I find different things to be surprised by and react emotionally to in that movie every time I watch it. So can I tell you what I know about Inside Lewin Davis? Oh, what is that? I picture, I picture it's, it's about the cigarette industry. I think it's because of the movie, uh, the insider. Yes. And then Lewin Davis sounds to me like, who's that guy? Who's that document? Errol Morris. Oh, Lewin Davis sounds like Errol Morris. So I'm basically picturing an Errol Morris documentary about the world of cigarettes. Hmm. So you know nothing about the movie? <laughs> no. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Sometimes I tell you a blind spot, and I can just feel your judgment <laughs> acro- across the country descending upon me. That's, that's the exact word I was going to use. It was descending upon you. 
Uh, well, good episode, man. Yeah. I think I think it was a good conversation about in both these movies together. I think show just how fucking brutal show business can be. Mm-hmm. It'll tear you it's, up and spit you out. Yeah, it will. Um, next episode, we don't know what we're doing. No, we're not sure yet. I think we'll have a guest. But I don't know. So. I've got a, a list of possibilities from our possible guest, so we If shall you want to be a guest, hit us up. Oh, for sure. I, th- I think we have a relatively short list right now of potential people. That's about it. You got any plugs? What have you watched lately? Um, All that jazz in Suspiria. That was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, nothing else that's really like... Blowing my doors off, I don't think. Unfortunately. I've seen everything everywhere all at once, twice in theaters. And Mm. I love it. So check that one out. And also, uh, Severance, the Apple TV show, was excellent. Oh, I will second that, yeah. And I can't wait for season two. But you're going to have to. Yep. All right, well, that'll do it for our theatrical... Oh, no, that's not how I want I was going to say theatrical mockery episode, but that's a quote from an American movie. <laughs> so, as we've learned today on this episode of Nashville CA, sometimes you tread the boards, sometimes the boards tread you. For myself, for Josh, be kind to yourselves, be kind to your neighbors, take care, everyone. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Nicely done. Thank you.